Welcome to the fourth and final part of our 2018 in review series for Some Like It, Scott. Today, we'll be putting on an award show that, unlike the Oscars, honors the most worthy films, performances, images, songs, and moments in film for the year 2018. Also, unlike the Oscars, this award show will have a host. And not just one, in fact, but two. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton, as we try today to not fail as spectacularly as James Franco and Anne Hathaway. Scott, before we get into our own awards, we haven't spoken since the Oscar nominations were released, and I'd love to get your brief, high-level thoughts on the choices made by the Academy this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we both have uh, a lot of opinions about the uh, the Academy, and and keep it high level since I, I'm sure we will talk about the nominations before the awards show, maybe on a future episode. But to me, I think the the things that I liked the most, of course, were R- Roma getting you know tied for the most nominations alongside. Was it? Oh, how am I forgetting this already? Who else was it? Was it tied with for most nominations? Was it Vice? The favorite. Oh, it was the favorite. That's right. Yeah, yeah, the favorite. So I feel good about that. Obviously, I'm I'm a little bit more lukewarm maybe than a lot of other people are on the favorite. But seeing Roma get ten nominations really made me feel good. Of course, seeing Spider Verse get a nomination, I really liked. Um, and then you know, of course, there's always the the things that are going to really upset you. And there are a few. Bradley Cooper not getting nominated for Best Actor. Uh, sorry, Best Director. Really, really frustrated me because I think that he might be my pick for Best Director for the year. I think that you know not to steal your thunder, but there is some, you know, some other categories as well that were extremely frustrating to see certain people not nominated for. And, and I know one of those that you're particularly frustrated about is, is of course in the best and uh, best original score category. And, and I share your uh, concern yeah. about that. I mean, we'll get into it because we will be picking for best original score. I mean, I, of course you all already know what I'm going to pick, but I don't know. Like it, if you, if you look at the field, like, Somebody was asking me, you know, like, what do you think? Who do you think shouldn't have made it in? All the scores are are good that are in the in the field. Like, there's no denying that. I mean, if I had to drop one, it would be Mary Poppins, just because I think the songs were a lot memorable than the actual score of the musical was. But mm-hmm. not, it's not really the, a case of where there are like a lot of unworthy nominees that beat it out. But I just don't mm-hmm. understand how you don't put first man in there based on the, you know, the run that it has made in awards season already, Justin Hurwitz, you have a guy who's already won an Academy award. Um, and, you know, I understand that the movie wasn't as well received maybe as, as Damien Chazelle's other movies, but it got some other tech nominations. So like, if you weren't going to recognize the the score, I would have like, rather they just not even recognize the movie at all. Right. But like, by nominating it in other categories, it shows like, oh, we're aware that this movie exists, but we are making the conscious decision to not include the score in there because we think these other scores are better, which I, I personally just don't understand. Yeah, I think that's fair. But you know, maybe we want to save some of the more detailed talk for a future episode where we do talk about the nominations and hopefully we'll get that out ahead of the Oscars, obviously. 
Of course. And I mean, well, we'll we're, we're going to try to do a, a better job today uh, as we make our selections for sure. I mean, we, we, we have our issues and, and we'll get to those on a future episode. You probably you probably could tell that just for my for my intro. But yeah, we're, we're going to try to do a better job today. And we're going to start off by working our way through some of the traditional Oscar categories before delving into some categories of our own creation. For each category, we will each pick a winner and an honorable mention or a few if we have them. And I think that's about it as far as ground rules, Scott. So with that, why don't we just jump right in with your choice for best visual effects for the year 2018? Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I guess for those ground rules, do we want to take talk about our pick first or do we want to do the honorable mentions first? Let's start with the honorable mentions. Build the suspense. Yeah, why not? Okay, yeah. So, you know, for honorable mentions, you know, there's one that I, I think probably was first and foremost in my mind that was a, a clear second place. It's actually going to be your winner, so I'm not going to – I'll leave that one aside and I don't have to pick that as my uh, honorable mention. But I do want to – I do want to talk about Aquaman – we dumped on it a little bit, and fairly so. I think it's it's not that spectacular of a movie. Clearly, it, it resonated with audiences very well. Uh, on the you know on a future episode, we're going to talk about the fact that it's now the highest grossing DCEU movie, which actually sorry, sorry the highest grossing DC uh, movie. So it surpassed the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises. Uh, so clearly, it's it's resonated with with fans. Uh, people have enjoyed going and seeing it. And to be fair, there are parts of it that I very much enjoyed too. And I think one of the things that I that grabbed people's attention in this movie is its visual effects. The fact that a large part of this movie is shot um, through the lens of being underwater and then the effects that you have to create for that to work is, is something that you know, no previous movie had done uh, to this extent. And I think that for that, it's very much worth an honorable, honorable mention. I think another honorable mention that I want to throw out there, and it is actually nominated. I had forgotten that it was nominated for this category uh, until I went and double checked when I, when I was making these honorable mentions. Is Christopher Robbins got a movie you didn't see, but uh, it, it brought some of these Winnie the Pooh characters from back in my childhood to life in a really, really lovely way. And, and part of the movie, I should say, you know, the biggest part of the movie that was so heartwarming and so enjoyable was seeing these characters, um, you know, animated in C- with CG, right? And they're not not animated in the sense of you know, into the Spider-Verse, but animated in the sense of CG, computer generated and and bringing those characters to life in a different way than we'd seen before. And I really liked that and, and think that those are probably two worthy honorable mentions in this category. Yeah, so I just went with one honorable mention. And, you know, when I think about this best visual effects category, there are so many big budget action movies that have great visual effects. Uh, you know, you're going to actually pick one for your winner. But when I'm, when I'm looking at best visual effects, because I see so many of these big budget action movies, because there are so many of these superhero movies and they, they have, you know, uniformly excellent uh, visual effects, there's no denying that. I'm looking for something a little bit different, though. And that's why I chose, both with, with my honorable mention and with my winner, movies that, you know, while they did have a, a, a decent sized budget, um, you know, weren't the the big budget uh, movies that, uh, you know, you, you, that everyone goes to see and that everyone expects, you know, to have the great via visual effects and also movies just that did different things with their visual effects than I'm used to seeing in movies. And so for my honorable mention, I went with First Man, Damien Chazelle's movie, you know, just talked about it. I think, you know, while we had some problems with the storytelling in this movie and the acting, I think the the technical aspects of this movie are truly stunning, and it, it's not the first time that I'm going to mention this movie on the show, uh, on, on today's episode. And I think that the visual effects, you know, not just in that moon landing sequence, which is obviously pretty breathtaking, but also um, in in all of the space travel sequences, it really makes you feel the uh, horror of being and like the the fear of being in space in a way that movies haven't really in the past. Movies that tend to romanticize space. 
Uh, and so I think the the people involved with the visual effects on First Man deserve a lot of credit. It, but it just wasn't quite my winner. But it's my honorable mention. I mean, that's the thing, Scott. Like, I was really surprised that you chose this film because I'm pretty sure this was just shot on the moon landing set that, you know, the government used in the 60s. That's true. Stanley Kubrick's. Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> fair I, I guess i should just throw it out altogether <laughs> no uh, yeah no that's a that's a worthy pick i also would have noted that as well because you not like you said not the last time it's going to come up in the show today and, and that and it's going to show up in those technical categories and, and something like the moon landing scene and the visual effects involved that are are outstanding yeah so why don't we move on to the winner now yeah absolutely you know you talked about big budget films and when it comes to visual effects i often think that you know whether we like it or not and, and I'm glad that you're taking a different approach to it, but whether we like it or not, budget often correlates to how good your visual effects are. It's just the truth, right? And, and you know, it's fitting then that the largest budget movie in history is going to be the winner of Best Visual Effects this year. And that's, of course, Avengers Infinity War. I think that the the scope of the visual effects in this film, you know, you, you can talk about the MCU and talk about visual effects in this film uh, or in this film with Guardians of the Galaxy or in another film with Iron Man and another film with Vision. So, you know, another Avengers movie. And you just get it all in one film in this movie and it does everything. And, you know, there's a reason why it's budget, you know, even before marketing was 300 to 400 million dollars. And that's because they hate. I mean, yes, they they pay their you know leading men and, and women. Um, I mean, mainly men, but also women, uh, a lot of money to do these roles. But, you know, still 50 percent of that, I'd imagine, if not more, is going into visual effects. And you can see it, the result of it on screen. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, again, I can't disagree. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find any. Any issues with the the VFX in these, you know, big budget Marvel movies? Except for Black Panther. Ironically, Black Panther, yeah. not that good special effects. Yeah, no, I, I remember that being a criticism at the time, though I didn't personally not- notice it when I saw Black Panther. But that you're right, that is kind of, it is kind of interesting to point that out. But for my winner, I went with the movie, um, you know, I, I kind of explained my, my methodology behind choosing this category. And so I went with the movie Annihilation, uh, from way back early in the year, Alex Garland film. I think this movie, from a visual effects standpoint, was so strange, but also mesmerizing. The way that it it created this world inside the sphere, or what, I don't even remember what the actual world was called, but... Um, the Shimmer. The it's Shimmer, called the Shimmer. right. Um, this really strange, rapidly changing world that goes from dark and bleak to these really bright flower covered you know sequences as well Uh, and then of course that ending which is pretty unforgettable scene just strange but but very beautiful and mesmerizing visuals like nothing i've really seen before in in creating uh you know that whole lighthouse sequence at the end so I, i i was really captivated by the effects in this movie and and didn't go into it necessarily expecting to to come out that way so annihilation that's my winner for best visual effect yeah, absolutely. I mentioned earlier, uh, right when we started with the honorable mentions that I would have, you know, this would have been my clear second pick for, you know, a visual effects category, obviously, not being nominated at the Oscars for this is, to me, I understand why, right? Like, I don't imagine that. Again, I'm, I'm forgetting the distribution uh, company behind this who would have, you know, campaigned for it for an Oscar nom. But you know, this movie does something different with visual effects, exactly like you've described. And, you know, this is the kind of movie that I went back and I saw a second time and I want to see again. And that's partly because of the world that Alex Garland creates um, with his vision and obviously with the adapted screenplay from the book. And yes, there is a source material for that. But then, you know, faithfully recognizing that and bringing that to life on screen involves, you know, heavy, heavy visual effects. And I, I thought it was gorgeous. And especially that last scene that you're talking about, you know, probably not the last time that's going to come up today, uh, but really, really loved, really loved visual effects in that movie. 
Absolutely. Now let's move on to uh, a category which, Scott, you and I may not know uh, a whole lot about, but I think we can both say that we know some know it's good when we see it, and that's makeup and hairstyling. So what uh, what were your choices uh, or choice for honorable mention in the in this category? Yeah, absolutely. I, I did manage to, to drum up two honorable mentions for this one, and they're not, I don't think you're going to mention either of them, um, one of which is because you hate this movie. Uh, actually, you hate both of these movies. <laughs> I think, but one more than the other. Um, in fact, I, I do remember us talking about how both of these movies to you, or at least parts of them, were hair and makeup jobs. And one of them is, of course, Vice, which we can now move on from and never speak of again today. And second is Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, You know, a, a movie that I, I feel and recognize many of the complaints about it, but the parts of it that really work for me, which, you know, I mean, it could even categorize it in visual effects even. I didn't end up mentioning it because I didn't think they were that notable. Um compared to some of the other ones, but I think that, you know, your the world of Harry Potter uh, and the world and the wizarding world more generally, I, sh- I guess I should say is really captured well in the creatures and in, in, in those uh, and how that's represented in the world. And also you get the makeup and hairstyling. And I think that, you know, it's not nominated at the Oscars. That's okay. I get it. I'm not going to be upset about that. I, I do understand, but I do think it's still worth, worth noting because it is something that was one of the better parts of the film. Yeah, now I, I agree with you when you say let's never speak of honestly either of these movies again now for the rest of the episode. For my uh, picks, I, I'm going to kind of go ahead and talk about both my honorable mention choice and my winner because I think they kind of go hand in hand. Both similar movies when you're talking about uh, this category. And that, those are, of course, The Favorite and Mary Queen of Scots. The Favorite was my honorable mention, and I just gave the, the edge to Mary Queen of Scots in this category. Both, I think do an impeccable job with the way that they render these Victorian scenes. And of course the hair and makeup is a huge aspect uh, of, you know, conveying that, that Victorian feel to the movie. And I think Mary Queen of Scots um, in particular, the, the reason I gave the edge to it, there's, there's just so memorable in the way that it, it renders um, Queen Elizabeth, um, the full white makeup as we are, you know, are, are accustomed to seeing Queen Elizabeth in popular depictions, the the Queen Amidala makeup, if you will, um, and you know the 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 splendiferous hairstyles that um, she she has, and then you know Mary, Mary to to a lesser extent has as well. I think just gave the edge to me in this movie. Although you can certainly find again many of the same things to love about. Um, what is done in these areas in the favorite as well. Yeah, I agree about Mary Queen of Scots. It's my pick as well. I think that 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 is a clear winner from the movies that I saw this year. I personally don't see the same in the favorite. I think that the costumes maybe is where the favorite excels more than in makeup and hairstyle. I just don't remember it being that memorable hairstyles happening. It didn't seem like that weird or non-traditional. Again, I could just not be remembering it very well. And, and I see to other people who are more knowledgeable in this field than I or maybe remember the favorite a little bit better. But Mary Queen of Scots, I mean, one of those things that, to your point, absolutely, that you remember is the makeup and hairstyling of Queen Elizabeth. And, and yes, like you said, to a lesser extent, also Queen Mary, Sharshi uh, Ronan's character as well. But th- they both, I think, are well ma- well make well made up is that right and uh, well well hairstyled and I think that obviously uh, one shines above the other but when you take the movie as a whole it it stands head and shoulders above the competition in my opinion for the movies that I saw this year yeah agreed and now let's move on to a category which you just mentioned and that's costume design um, what movies costume design stood out to you the most this year start with your honorable mention or two. Yeah, absolutely. Costume designs here. Like I mentioned, I, th- I view kind of the favorite as one that stood out more. You have 
all the different garbs of, um, you know, I'm forgetting the character's names. So obviously you have the queen played by Olivia Coleman and then both Rachel Weiss and Emma, Emma Stone's characters, whose names are, I'm sorry, are escaping me right now, but they're all costumed so well. And then you can't forget either Nicholas Holt's character and, and then also Joe, uh, Joe Alwyn's character. You know, everyone in this movie kind of top to bottom has, you know, outstanding co- costume design here and you you have kind of the upstairs downstairs element as well you have of course the queen and the people who are taking care of her and then you also have these people who at least you know towards the beginning and then they pop up throughout the film as well kind of in the downstairs element of the movie who are also well costumed it's just all around this movie does a great job it's not my winner it's my honorable mention here because i think that it's so in my opinion it's just kind of so oscar Beatty to do your Victorian period drama and, you know, you do the costumes well enough, you're going to win the, you're going to win the award. And so I, I went with something, I went with a different direction this year in terms of what I'm going to pick as my winner, I think in best costumes and, but the favorite's still worth, worth a mention. And it's absolutely admirable for what it did in this category. Yeah. So my honorable mention is actually your winner. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about my winner and then we can both touch on your uh, winner and my, my honorable mention. But uh, my choice in this category is Suspiria. Um, I think, you know, this is a movie I could have, I, I also thought about for makeup and hairstyling, but I think for me, the costumes are what really stood out and, and particularly the the dance sequences, the red dresses and the, you know, one particularly memorable scene. But throughout the movie, um, I think give this movie re- really add to the eerie supernatural feel um, that Luca Guadagnino and, and all involved were really trying to, uh, to convey with this movie. And it, they're pretty mesmerizing in, in these in these ballet sequences in particular. And I, I you know, I'm kind of shocked that this movie didn't get any Oscar nominations in the in the technical categories because I think it's a real shame. I mean, as as off the wall and maybe odd as the movie is to the average moviegoer, I think you know those those same moviegoers can definitely find a lot to love about uh, you know the the makeup and hairstyling, the costumes as well. Um, so. Uh, a snub there, maybe one that people, a lot of people aren't talking about, but in my book, definitely a snub that Suspiria wasn't considered here, but um, it's my pick for best costume design. Yeah. You know, I didn't see this movie, Scott, and, and it's on my list of movies to catch before, you know, the first in the foreseeable future, you know, in the near term. But I wonder if one thing that hurt it was just the fact that people didn't see this movie, right? I mean, I know that it's the Academy, right? They see more movies and maybe, you know, more alternative, quote unquote, alternative movies than a lot of people see. But that being said, like the Academy is larger now. It's voting base is a bit different, a bit younger. Uh, Not sure that this movie really grabs as many people as it used to, you know, as maybe might be interested in this movie. And obviously it interests me from the way we've talked about it. But I do wonder what percentage of the Academy saw this movie. And that might have been the reason, to be honest, why it just it just didn't get enough mind share of the Academy voters. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only think that must have been the real reason behind it, because, again, if you see it, I think the costumes are one of the standout things, regardless of how you feel about the film. For sure, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned it as, as this is your honorable mention, my winner, and that's Black Panther. I think, you know, I I did critique it a, a little bit just a few moments ago about how maybe its visual effects at certain points in the film aren't aren't as spectacular as you might expect from a movie like this but it's costumes you know not just in terms of the superhero costume for black panther but the costumes are for all the wakandans in the film i think are just spec just wonderful so 
you know, as, I mean, obviously I can't speak to cultural authenticity, but my understanding is that uh, it, this really draws a lot from African culture, um, African-American culture, and it does it in a really authentic way. You know, Ryan Coogler, of course, being the director behind this and, and someone who really wants to to make sure his movies are authentic in a, in a way, you know, he, you know, he did Fruitvale Station, he did the first Creed movie. He wants to draw in you know, really raw, authentic elements into his movie. And I think that you see that in the way that the costume design uh, goes about in this movie. Of course, you have uh, you have the the loyal guard for the for the king and his family, which are, you know, their costumes are done a different way. And then each and every tribe of the Wakandans has their own costume design. And, and that's something that I really appreciated as a part of this movie. You know, I have no idea whether or not it will be rewarded at the Oscars for this. But to me, it stuck out and, and it stuck out in a really positive way. Yeah, I completely agree. These are costumes like we've never seen in a Marvel movie before. And, you know, kind of what you're getting at, that they're they're really faithful to the, uh, you know, African heritage, African roots um, that are obviously deeply ingrained in the story of of Black Panther. So I I really appreciate that. It makes no apologies whatsoever um, for that in, in the costumes or in any other aspect of the film. So that's why I chose it as my honorable mention. Absolutely. All right, let's move ahead now to best editing. Uh, I think, Scott, for both of us, there was a clear winner in this category. But uh, before we we tip our hat to that film, how about an honorable mention or two? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I have two honorable mentions written down here. One of them is your honorable mention, so I won't. I won't go. So I'll just go for the one this time. And and for me, it's it's Black Klansman. I think that there's one scene in particular that sticks in my mind. But you know, before I touch on that scene, I just think this movie in general is really is really well edited. There is lots of scenes in this movie that are stitched and woven together. You know, whether it be the beginning, whether it be the end, and then you know anywhere in between. Right. Not only do you have the sound editing, of course, of, of the score being interwoven uh, with the movie, but you also have. You also have this one scene in particular, and it's where they have this uh, Ku Klux Klan rally and the birth of a nation kind of showing at the same time. And then it's cutting back and forth between this scene with the kind of the, the black, the black power movement of the local college, uh, listening to uh, an elderly African-American man who's talking about his experiences uh, with civil rights and, and, and things of that nature. And, and it's so beautifully edited and cut together. I think that is the, the exemplar of, of what this movie does with editing. Uh, there is a movie, in my opinion, that that edited uh, even better than this. And we're going to talk about that in a second. And, and I can even hear arguments for saying this other movie that we're going to talk about in terms of honorable mention is a better edited movie than Black Klansman, but still felt worth mentioning to me. Yeah, no, definitely. And and that sequence that you talked about, I think, is is definitely the standout, not just dramatically in the movie, but yeah, when you're when you're thinking about the editing it's very persuasive in the way that it weaves those two scenes together. So really, really a good choice there. My honorable mention and one of yours as well was first man. Once again, um, I think again, for, for some of the reasons that I mentioned with, with VFX, I think this movie really, the, the editing really uh, gives you the, the jolty uh, jittery feel of what space travel is actually like, but it also, uh, you know, emphasizes the highs of space travel. You know, those moments that we're used to seeing. And I think, you know, that moon landing sequence, when we first see the moon for the, the first, when we, when we see the moon for the first time, I think there's just a, a, a beautiful cut by the editor there as, as the moon is revealed. And of course, as Justin Hurwitz's score, you know, crescendos as well uh, in a stun, just a stunning moment seeing it for the first time. And the editing plays a huge role in that and, and is excellent throughout the movie. Yeah, agreed. First man's great. Yeah, we're again, not the last time it's going to come up in terms of technical uh, categories. 
And now for our winner, Scott, would you like to do the honors? I mean, to anyone who's been following our podcast religiously and and maybe listened since you don't even have to have listened since the beginning, right? But yeah, middle of the summer, we'll say late summer, if you've been listening to the podcast and you listen to our best movies of 2018, um, 2018, our first 2018 review uh, part of, of our little mini series here, you're going to know what we're about to say. And that's, of course, it's searching. Uh, this movie absolutely is, is like floored me both times that I saw it. And there are many elements that contribute to that. And one of which is how well this movie is edited, uh, like, like period, <laughs> full stop, end of story, every aspect of it. Uh, of course, for those of you who may not be familiar searching, it's kind of hook is that it's not just your typical mystery thriller, you know, find my kidnapped daughter movie. It is shot in, a, in a, and presented and edited in a manner which all, all, you know, everything that's happening on screen is happening through the lens of some sort of video camera on a computer, on a phone. It's using these devices to show its screen and the masterful job that it must have took to get this movie edited together in a smooth way where where what you're seeing on screen is coherent. Not just the story, right? But the, what you're seeing is coherent is just, it's spectacular. It's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic achievement. Yeah, because I think the editors in particular bear the brunt in this movie of keeping you interested in what's going on, even though what we're seeing is, you know, John Cho sitting at a computer and, you know, the the way that they do that by cutting out. <laughs> we all know sometimes that maybe it takes a little bit uh, longer to get to Google than this movie might portray, but nobody actually wants to see like online waiting times in this movie. So even simple things like that, I think, uh, speak to the, the job that the editors do here. And yeah, I, just cutting all of the the different uh, websites and everything that that he's accessing on the computer together again had to be a titanic effort and, and it, making it into a package that is accessible and that you know you're never once bored by uh, quite the alternative it it remains thrilling throughout so this was a clear winner agreed all right let's move on to the category and you know Scott you made the joke pre-show that we should do this category during the break because there were some news leaked this week that the Oscars. Uh, is going to be, you know, unless there's some sort of change of heart, which I hope they do have, they're going to be giving out the Best Cinematography Award during a commercial break in an attempt to streamline the show. So, Scott, I think let's give the cinematographers the due that they deserve that the Oscars may not give them to them. Uh, what are your honorable mention or mentions in this category? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I know that we're pretty, or we're overlapping pretty hard in this category in terms of what we think are like the top two here. Uh, I know that we we have we actually have them flipped in terms of what we think is best cinematography uh, versus what's our honorable mention. But I do want to throw out another one that I was kind of thinking of as we recorded this podcast. And and that's first man. Right. Like, again, another technical category for it. Uh, and, and it's good. Right. Like you mentioned just a moment ago when we were talking about the editing. Well, it, it really conveys what it's like to be you know, the horror of being, you know, adrift in space, so to speak. Right. And I think that there are scenes in particular, even the opening scene. Right. Uh, the opening scene in this movie, which is is spectacular in that it it sets the tone for the whole film in terms of what space travel is like. This is not a movie, to your point from earlier, is that is going to be romanticizing space travel. It's it's going to be a movie that is is you know hard knuckled, giving you the reality of what it's like to you know hurdle through space in these you know you know metal metal cans basically, and 
the part of that experience is the cinematography. It's very claustrophobic in these particular scenes. You know, I don't know if, if the av- like the the day to day quote unquote cinematography is something to write home about in this movie. But anytime you see Ryan Gosling or someone else get into a spaceship, the cinematography takes off. Uh, and no pun intended there. It really does set itself apart in these moments. And it's sort of lackluster or, or you know, just thoroughly average perf- like cinematography, you know, when they're not in space kind of is what maybe weighs it down a bit and, and keeps it grounded to keep using this pun. I think that, that that probably is where it falls short. But to me, you know, the clear number two for me in, the, in this one is A Star is Born. I think that I know that this is your winner. So go ahead and, and I'll let you take over in a second. But what you know, is it uh, Matthew Libatique? Yes. D- is able to do with the cinematography here, you know, working with Bradley Cooper as the director. It's just awesome. Like the, the concert scenes, you know, from start to finish are nothing like I've seen before in a movie. And that's including another concert scene that we're going to talk about, you know, later, I'm sure at some point, even though that movie will try to not be named uh, until then. But it, to me, th- this this movie captured what it's like to be at a concert better than any I've, I've seen before. Yeah, and I mean, it. W- this was a difficult choice for me because it was between A Star is Born and, and the movie that you chose for your winner. And I really, I think we, we've said so much about the movie that you chose, the cinematography in that movie, and the work that it does storytelling-wise, um, in addition to, you know, just being very gorgeous to look at. So I wanted to honor, you know, A Star is Born because I think maybe its cinematography and how good it is has gone slightly under the radar, but... What, what Matthew Libatique does here is is truly spectacular, and those concert scenes, I said it at the time, and I stand by it, are the best I've seen in a movie since Almost Famous, maybe even better than, you know, Almost Famous, which, if you know me, you know how much that, you know, you know, you know how much that, how, how hard that is for me to say. Absolutely. I've seen your, I've seen your letterbox profile enough where it's in your top four, so. Yeah, number two. But um, yeah, I mean, the from the moment Bradley Cooper steps on stage, it is a totally immersive experience in, in these concert scenes. And I think, you know, being the live music junkie that I am, being the per- a person who has stood in the front of the pit, you know, many times, like the people, you know, at these concerts that we see, I can tell you uh, firsthand that it's the real deal, the cinematography. And it, it really gets it right in terms of what it's like to be right there. Uh, at a big stadium concert throughout the movie. Um, And so I I can't say enough good words about Matthew Libatique's work here. And he is nominated for the Oscar. I think it's, it's a, this one's going to be a shoe in for, for your choice, my runner up, but would be thrilled to see him win it. Yeah. I I mean, absolutely. You know how much I love this movie. It was my number three when we did our podcast just, you know, a month, a month ago. And, and, you know, since then, you know that I re I went back and rewatched this movie and I'm like, man, maybe it should have been my number two. It's such a good movie. Such a good movie, and part of that is absolute cinematography. So no, no, you would hear no complaints from me if Matthew Libatique won the Oscar. But I think for me, the best cinematography, the most memorable cinematography, and you know, honestly, Scott, I'm not even sure that I'm not going to say this is the best cinematography of all time by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm saying if if we get something that that gets near the cinematography of this film or or A Star Is Born for that matter too in 2019, it'll be impressive. And that's Roma. Roma, just a gorgeous, 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 gorgeous movie. I think that Alfonso Cuaron does the cinematography for his own film here. And it's, you know, we, we've said it so many times before and anyone who's been listening to, you know, Oscar uh, or movie podcasts has probably heard it a thousand times, but the, the guy is the star. Alfonso Cuaron is the star of this movie. It's his vision, not only in the, from the director's chair, but literally from the camera, he's doing the cinematography here 
some of the shots, I mean, God, there must be five or 10 shots that are some of the most memorable shots of the year. And it's, it's unbelievable. That's what I was going to say. Like more so than any movie this year. Like I remember like specific shots from Roma way more than, than any movie, honestly. And that obviously speaks to the cinematography and, you know, these shots, like, you know, when we see Marina di Tavera sitting in the car after wrecking, when we see Yelitsa Aparicio, you know, she stands up in her seat at the movie theater and that simple act of standing says so much all of these you know shots say so much without the characters having to say anything and i think that's just really next level stuff when it comes to cinematography so yeah i mean maybe if if uh you twisted my arm a little bit more i'd choose it as the winner but like i said i, I wanted to recognize a star is born so i chose it but i mean i can't I can't say a bad word about Roma's cinematography. Hey man, you know you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna get any pushback from me for recognizing this. Of course. And speaking of a star is born, let's move right on to our next category: best original song, or as I like to call it, which song from a star is born did you like the most? Hey man, I put I you know I put two on here just for the sake of talking about something else besides a star is born. My honorable mentions will not only be a star is born songs. Uh, you'll also get. Um, Scissors All the Stars from Black Panther, which I think is a great music, a, a great credit song. It's almost weird to pick a credit song. I think, of course, you don't get that much music often in, in terms of songs, right? Um, in in Marvel movies, oftentimes it's the credit song is where you're going to get your song uh, from Marvel, and that's what you get here. You get Scissors All the Stars. Of course, there are other songs in Black Panther that are really, really great. Honestly, it's a, it's a great soundtrack for that from that perspective. But All the Stars really takes the cake from Black Panther, and then you know. Mary Poppins returns also in here. I, you know, your honorable mention is from Mary Poppins and I probably agree that that's probably one of the better songs, but just for the sake of mentioning something else, I chose the place where lost things go. It's a movie. It's a song that kind of reprises several times throughout the movie as actually, I mean, to be fair, a lot of the songs do, I, I guess, but I feel like this one comes up more often uh, than just a couple times. And it really, it really tugs at your heartstrings. It really puts into perspective. I think a lot of the things that, the, the major theme I should say that this one of the major themes that this movie is really wrestling with. And that's of course loss. And how do you, how do you deal with loss? How do you move, move through and move beyond loss and, and how do you deal with those sorts of things? And that, and that song captures it really well. And then of course my honorable mention from a star is born is going to be shallow, a beautiful song. that's going to win the Oscar. Shocking and honorable mention. Yeah. Um, my honorable mention, like, you know, I made the joke about a star is born and how we're really just picking our favorite, song from that movie, but I really do love uh, and have listened to many times the song Nowhere to Go But Up from Mary Poppins Returns. You know, the whole sequence, obviously, is the highlight of that movie when, you know, they're floating away on the the balloons and all the characters come together uh, in this climactic scene. But the song really, I think, accents what's going on in the in the scene really well. And, you know, it, it's emotional and it it captures, as you are, are fond of saying about this movie, that the childlike sense of wonder that the movie really evokes throughout. Um, and I think it, it, this is the crescendo of it. And, and to have all the characters joining in, to having them all you know, with their individual parts and then all together, uh, it's, it's a wonderful song. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think that uh, the only thing it was missing was uh, not having Angela Lansbury in it and having a particular other character in it that might have been uh, better received. That's true, but you know, no, no knock on Angela Lansbury, of course. No, I love her. Murder uh, she wrote for life. Come on, of course, of course. All right, let's let's uh, pick our winner. Yeah, can we can we say it together? No, I'm, I'm kidding. We don't have to do that. I don't think we could sync that well enough. Well, I think maybe we should sing it together. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, I'll let you do it. <laughs> we can't do justice to Lady Gaga, unfortunately. No, I'm not even going to pretend to try. But to your point, before I do say what, what this is, like, honestly, I could have just like listed all the songs from a Star Is Born, and as my honorable mentioned, the, the the album is just incredible. It really is. And like, when I sorry, just to jump in, when I listen to it, I'm like, man, some of these songs are so good, and they're barely in the movie. Like, I there's a couple there's a couple songs in the soundtrack where I can barely remember where they actually were in the movie, but they're really good songs. Yeah, Alibi is one of them. Alibi is a great song. Yeah, digging my grave. Yeah, great. Yeah, but it, the one that takes the cake it features very prominently in the movie, uh, and that's "I'll Always Remember Us This Way," or "Always Remember Us This Way," whichever it is. Uh, great song. Yeah, I mean, this is like the show-stopping moment of the whole movie for me. Like, we get it about halfway through when when Lady Gaga is at the piano. You know, they're kind of reaching. The, she and Bradley Cooper have have really reached the high point in their tour together. Um, and Lady Gaga is really coming into her own as a performer. And this, this uh, you know, song where she performs the song is really all about her. Um, and, you know, I, I made the joke at the time, but I really just wanted to stand up and applaud at the end of it because that's how, that's how good it was. And I think, you know, Shallow was marketed really heavily in going into the movie, and, and it was in the trailers, and you could listen to the song. It, they released it as a single before the movie ever came out. So I kind of knew what to expect from that shallow scene as as good as the song is. But I think, you know, hearing I'll Always Remember Us This Way, which I mean, I think is a better song than Shallow for me. Um, and, you know, which which I, you know, had no idea about the song, hadn't, hadn't heard any snippet of the song. And, and watching Lady Gaga's performance was something truly special and definitely one of the most memorable scenes in a movie this year. And, you know, this the song is great. I'm really annoyed that they didn't put this one up for the Oscar. I think that the entire reason was that. Oh, yeah, sorry. I was just gonna say, I think the entire reason that you don't see this up is that they really don't want to risk splitting the vote between their own their own movie and losing to uh, Mary Poppins. That's fair. I think it's shallows to lose. But I mean, again, great songs throughout that movie. So all right, well, we'll continue the musical theme as we talk about best original score. Scott, um, I think this one is probably a, a pretty obvious what I'm going to choose. I even talked about it in the intro, but uh, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. Hey, man, I would say that uh, Justin Hurwitz, honorable mention, absolutely for his score for First Man. I think that what he does there is really fantastic. I think that, uh, you know, another honorable mention before I get to one that I think is going to be a little bit different than your honorable mentions is is Black Klansman, right? It really nails the music of, is it the 70s? I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly when. Yeah. The yep. movie was set, but really, really nails the sort of it just reminds me of like some sort of like 70s, like some sort of like, I don't know, 70s ish, like like detective movie where you, or like even detective TV show, even that just like very jazzy, yeah, yeah very jazzy. You have the certain like riffs that kind of repeat over the course of the film. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a it's not a movie with a heavy amount of music from what I remember. But when it does, when it does you utilize music, it utilizes it really well. And that's what I think it's getting its its credit for here from us. And that's Black Klansman. I know that was one of your honorable mentions as well. But uh, to talk about my kind of different honorable mention, I should say, is, is Thoroughbreds. I think it's a movie that at times I think you could even argue overuses its music. But at the you know, I think you can make the same complaint about the the movie that I'm going to say is the winner here, too. But I think that just because it overuses it does, doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. I think that. Uh, it re- really nails the tone. I'm, th- I'm even thinking of the opening scene, which is just this long shot kind of going through the house of Anya Taylor-Joy's uh, character and family. And it's this very long shot pan through the house. And you have this really eerie music the entire time. And you know exactly what kind of movie it's going to be 
from the music, right? Not from the shot, but I mean, the cinematography of that scene is great, but it's the music that, that tells you all you need to know about what you're about to experience over the next 90 minutes. Yeah, I mean, you know how much I love the movie. I could have easily thrown it in there as well. I think the music is great. I, I just limited myself a little bit more, I guess. But yeah, I love Black Klansman. It was one of my honorable mentions. And my other honorable mention is the movie that you'll talk about in just a sec. But, you know, since it's no secret, I might as well just go ahead and say that my choice is first man. Of course, Justin Hurwitz with the score. Um, you know, I've been a big mad about the fact that it didn't get the Oscar nomination and People have been asking me, like, okay, it's an original score. Like, why are you getting so upset about music? Like, I understand if it's a performance or, you know, something like that, but it, it's just a score. But it's more than just a score. Like, it is the emotional heartbeat of this movie for me. Um, the places that it chooses to crescendo, it picks its moments ex exactly perfectly, um, but it's also restrained when it needs to be. Um, and, you know, it, it adds to those, like, really... Uh, I can't think of the word, but like th those scenes that really evoke fear, uh, you know, when they're on the space shuttle, when it's visceral, you know, maybe. Yes, sure. Um, whatever adjective you want to use when, when it's, <laughs> it's jolting into space, um, you know, there, there's this really loud and sort of sireny music that, um, you know, goes right along with, with how you feel. I mean, that's, that's really the, the thing about a great score is that it captures how you feel as the audience. And that's exactly what this score does. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it is it is one of the best scores, probably the best of the decade for me. Wow. I can think of another one that has has really uh, touched me in the way that this score that Justin Hurwitz did for this movie has. And I, I continue to listen to it weekly while I'm doing homework or whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll put it on. and it, It's just stunning in every way. And I, I feel bad for Justin Hurwitz. I know he has an Oscar, but uh, and obviously his score for La La Land is great, but it doesn't compare to this one for me. Um, and it, it was my clear front runner. Although again, as I said at the top of the show, a lot of excellent scores and Scott's going to talk about another one right now. Yeah. You know, also I don't care what the Academy said last year. Phantom thread is the best score from last year. I, mm. I'm sorry. Hey, hey, you can disagree with me. It's fine. But the, it was Johnny Greenwood, I really like three billboards. Yeah. Well, Alexander Desplat one, I'm more thinking about like Alexander Desplat one for, yeah, for shape of water, which, okay. You know what? I haven't seen the movie, guys. Sorry, I haven't seen it. Maybe the score is the best. I don't know. And, and he's nominated again this year for Isle of Dogs, so maybe he's the Meryl Streep of this category. Uh, maybe. I mean, how many nominations does he have? He's probably got like 10 or 15, right? Like, he does everything. Got to be a lot, yeah, yeah. But Johnny Greenwood's score from Phantom Thread, to me, just on your point of best of the decade, I think that that score resonated with me more, even more so than what First Man did. And I would even say that... Uh, I would say the first man score didn't have the, of course it was really, really powerful. Right. Uh, but didn't have the same effect on me as it did on you. And, and maybe the Academy had a similar experience to me more so than you, but I still think to have it, to not have it nominated, it just seems crazy to me. The other big score though, for me though, and you know, maybe there's a bit of a recency bias here. We saw this movie much more recently than first man. Uh, and that's if Bill street can talk. I mean, we talked, we reviewed this podcast just on the last episode. Uh, and it's a beautiful movie not just because of its visuals and the and the kind of cinematic vision of Barry Jenkins, but also because of the score. The score it just it matches the beauty of the movie perfectly. And and you know, to reference Phantom Thread again, that was a movie that had like music for like seventy five or not like somewhere like between seventy five and ninety percent of the movie had music in the background, the, the score in the background to it. And I think that this movie probably is somewhere close to that. And there's a lot of music in this movie, and it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. All right, Scott, let's move on now to another category where we both had a pretty uh, easy choice for the winner, I guess. But uh, before we talk about that movie, our choice for best animated film, 
uh, why don't you point out one or two honorable mentions for us? Well, Scott, I only saw a handful of animated films. Uh, you know, there are a few yeah. that I missed that are, that could be in the in contention, of course, and that's you know Wreck It Ralph or you know even Smallfoot. I'm just kidding. That's probably not going to be in contention. Um, sorry, <laughs> but Wreck It Ralph is probably the big one that I missed this year that probably could have could have made the made the conversation for an honorable Ralph mention. Breaks the internet, yeah. Yes, Ralph breaks the internet. I guess they dropped the Wreck It Ralph two thing. Yeah, Ralph breaks the internet. Um, you're absolutely right. But I think, you know, I'm having not seen that, I can't I can't give it an honorable mention. And knowing what your honorable mention is, I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, of course, The Incredibles 2. I hope to God it does not win the Oscar, but it, it's still in spite of your, you know, being a little bit more negative and not even negative, right? But just more average on the movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, to be fair, I think that, you know, it still struck with me really well. And, and in, a, in a year that there was probably only three good animated movies uh, in terms of Oscar quality animated movies. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting one. Please forgive me for those of you who might come up with a with one that I, I'm leaving out here. But, you know, it, it's still it's shown, right? It, it, it showed through. It, it isn't your favorite. It isn't my favorite. I hope it doesn't win the Oscar, like I said already, but still good movie. Yeah, uh, I really loved Isle of Dogs. It was my honorable mention. Could have easily been my winner in another year. I think it's a great animated movie. I liked it a lot more than... Uh, Wes Anderson's last stop motion animation movie, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And yeah, I think it's one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, if we're being honest. Uh, I really enjoyed it. But let's talk about our winner, Scott. It's got to be Spider-Man. Absolutely. It's not even a question. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Best animated movie. Maybe the best animated movie of the decade. And that's saying something, right? Like there have been some fantastic animated movies this decade. I'm thinking Inside Out. I'm thinking Zootopia. I'm a huge fan of Lego movie. Sorry, I'm only talking about movies that were Oscar nominated. Scott, sorry. Um, (sighs) Oh, man, I'm going to have to log off right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Yes. You know, Scott, I just saw the Lego movie for the first time yesterday. So I have to agree. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? And your life hasn't been forever changed? No, I don't know if it's been forever changed. I'm clearly not as big a fan as you are, but no, four four and a half stars out of five on Letterboxd, Scott. You got to look at my reviews. Okay. Yeah. Well, I I did see it. I just assumed it was a rewatch, I guess. No, it wasn't a rewatch. I just don't mention it around you because I know you're so passionate about it. I was too scared to tell you I hadn't seen it. Probably wise, yeah. (laughs) But I've seen it now, so you can't hate on me. All right. We're going to have to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't have to talk about that right now. Uh, But no, I think that into the Spider-Verse, I do think it's better than the Lego movie. And I think it could be one of the best animated movies uh, of the decade, if not the best. Of course, there are some heavy contenders from, you know, the Pixar, the likes of Pixar. And I know I'm not talking about the Incredibles 2 here. I'm talking about some of their their films that really have resonated with me. But it's Spider-Verse, right? Like it's a superhero movie. It's an innovative animation style. It's characters are really real, like feel really authentic, you know, very relatable from, you know, I'm not going to say from start to finish, right? Because there's some, you know, outlandish spider, spider men, spider, spider beans in this movie, but they all hit, you know, and, and the one maybe that hits a little bit less than others still hits well for me. And it's just, it's just a fantastic movie. I gave it a 9.8. I haven't been able, had the time yet to rewatch it. I, I want to rewatch it to see if it still has that same impact on me. Its score is great. We didn't really talk about its its soundtrack and its music very much, mm-hmm. but that's really great too. Uh, and, and its narrative is, is strong across the board one of the best movies of the year honestly you know i didn't put this in my best picture conversation i probably should have honestly i should have made this honorable mention in best picture um from and that's my fault but this movie's great yeah okay it's not better than lego movie for me but it's really really close which i didn't know that i would say that about an animated movie so soon after the lego movie came out 
But I think, and you know, maybe now that you've seen the Lego movie, you know, you can, you can judge that my comparison I think is, is fair that this is kind of a superhero version of the Lego movie. Like, and obviously that makes sense considering we have both Phil Lord and Chris Miller involved with this. But I think in terms of the originality, the zippy humor, the really, uh, wholesome themes i guess of the movie it, it's it's such a hip and fresh movie that you know i wouldn't have been surprised if the academy had you know passed on it for that very reason but i'm so glad maybe they're finally starting to get the memo about a, at least the you know animated movies because this movie was not just one of the best animated movies of the year but one of the best movies of the year and i can't say can't praise it enough absolutely it really feels like this category is becoming Lord and Miller versus Pixar. Yeah. At this point. And I think that's a good thing. I think that the fact that the, the Oscar demographics have changed so much just in the last, you know, four or five years. I mean, and I think the, like the year the Lego movie came out probably also fell in that category, but now that there has really been a shift in, in, in both the number of Oscar voters and also the demographics among them, a movie like spider verse, a movie like the Lego movie can resonate. Well, or at least will resonate with more people at the Oscars and, and the fact just the fact that it's, you know, a movie about Legos or, you know, a comic book movie no longer has the same stigma uh, right. in terms, at least in the animated category, right? Like, of course, you know, people, all the conversations this year is like, does Black Panther break the, you know, break through the barrier of comic book movies and best picture, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that conversation is, is yet to be determined. I think we'll see, you know, this year and next year and, you know, the next three or four years, how that pans out in terms of that conversation. But in the animated category, right? Like, it, it, it is there's more headway in this space, I feel like, or at least more room for it. And there's not normally, quote unquote, superhero movies in the animated category. But I think it's a category where that's more likely to have an impact on people more so than the best picture category with, you know, live action movies. And and you see it this year, right? And, and Spider-Verse is just it's a fantastic movie, guys. Go see it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I really want to see it again as soon as I can. Okay, let's move on now to maybe some of the sexier awards that uh, that people maybe uh, maybe came to hear. Um, let's start with the screenplay awards and, and best you know best animated short. You're right, it's yeah. sexy sexy categories people came to hear. Exactly, sound mixing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll start with original screenplay um, and then move on to adapted. Honorable mentions for original screenplay, Scott. Yeah, uh, you know, we were mentioning off air before this started that in terms of the Oscar nominated picks this year, really weak crowd. Uh, we yeah. came up with some more. This is I think this is where we're starting to really add our value in terms of bettering the Oscars. Right. I think that, you know, it's the screenplay. This original screen categories is one of them, I think, where I can put my pen and then and, and take a stand on. We really did it better than the Oscars did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have the same winner, Scott. I, to me, it maybe is less cl- a less clear of a winner than it is for you. But two of the movies that I really liked that this year that weren't on that I saw that weren't on your honorable mentions list are uh, a quiet place. First and foremost, I think that the original screenplay here is really strong. The reason why it doesn't break through into the top tier of winners in this category is because I think there's about a five to 10 minute segment where the screenplay is awful, <laughs> like really, really bad. Uh, but the rest of the movie is really, really good. And, and you know, the ending, the beginning, you know, if this is a 90 minute movie, there's like 80 minutes of it that are really strong in terms of screenplay. Uh, maybe a little bit on the nose at times, and I understand it, but it's, it's still stuck with me, right? And and I'm maybe I just give it a lot of credit because I like Emily Blunt and John Krasinski, and I think that they are, you know, 
relationship goals in life, et cetera. But uh, I think that maybe I give it a little bit more credit because of that. But, you know, if you can forget those five minutes that aren't very good, I think you've got something that's really compelling and, ori- and original, right? Original. It's really original. You, you know, we have horror tropes all the time, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are a few in here as well. But some of the things this movie does are really, re- are really great. And, and you, I haven't personally experienced them before. Granted, I'm not a connoisseur of the horror, horror genre as much as you or, you know, some other people might be. But I really like this movie. I really like Tully as well. I was actually surprised to not see it on your list for original screenplay. I think with this, the 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 narrative this this movie crafts uh, is really really awesome. And you know maybe it, it takes a little time to vibe with it at the beginning, but by the end, when you know what happened, when the twist occurs, it ties it all up in a bow, and you've got something really special. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love Tully. I think that maybe again, it was just a case of me limiting myself to two or three here. I mean, it it could have definitely made it in there though, but. You know, some of my honorable mentions, the favorite, obviously, Yorgos Lanthimos, very memorable script in terms of its uh, really a savage sense of humor, I think, is the thing that stands out for me. Private Life, which, you know, was written and directed by Tamara Jenkins for Netflix, really like realistic, authentic movie, probably best portrayal of a marriage uh, in a movie this year between Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn. Uh, it, it really just felt so true to life. So shout out to Tamara Jenkins for that. And then I really loved the screenplay for Thoroughbreds. You know, again, one of the best things about the movie, Corey Finley on on his debut, you know, really coined this really cool and fresh teenage lingo that these characters talk in throughout the movie. Uh, sort of in, in a way that I haven't seen a, a coming of age or teen movie do in a long time. And it, it's a difficult feat to pull off, but I, I think he, he pulled it off with, uh, this movie and his characters and the character development. Again, I think we've talked about this before. It's really it's something great in, in Thoroughbred. So it was a it was a close second for me. Although, like you said, I, I never really thought about putting anything first, but our winner. Yeah, man. Also, just to cycle back for a second, I need to see Private Life. It's on my shortlist. I really expect to see it, you know, in the month of February. I have some time mm-hmm. coming up where I'll have a lot of time just to crush through some Netflix movies, I think. And there's actually quite a few for me to catch up on. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that because yeah. you you praise it so highly. I mean, it was in your top 20 for the year. So I'm really it was, excited and about that. I, I think that editing scene in particular is spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. So can't wait to see that. And, you know, then, of course, Thoroughbreds. Uh, the more I hear you talk about it, the more I feel like I need to like, go back and watch it because I didn't love it as much you as you did. Still a great movie, but I feel like I need to go back and see it again. Yeah, you do. <laughs> good, good, good. And then the favorite was my other honorable mention that I said that we kind of shared. But yeah, agreed on that. But yeah, the the winner here, Scott. I got. I can't. I can't take this. I can't steal your thunder here. This is your movie. This is your baby. Uh, definitely, <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you talk about it. Well, it's actually Bo Burnham's baby, but I, I I see where you're going, and that that's of course is eighth grade. I think this movie portrayed coming of age in such a raw and honest way, but not in a depressing way, right? I mean, obviously there are moments that are downers in this movie, but it captures the highs and the lows of being an adolescent so beautifully. Like, you know, there may be some coming of age movies over the recent years that I have personally enjoyed more, but I can't think of a one that is more evocative and more authentic than what Bo Burnham did here. The fact that he was able to you know, this this 30-something white guy portrayed so much what it's like to be this girl, Kayla, in eighth grade, like, is something truly special. And I think it, it really shows, you know, the, the research and the time he spent trying to investigate what it's like to be a kid in, in 2018. And I think he totally nailed it. Um, the screenplay is 
is exceptional. And this is num- as much as I am mad about Justin Hurwitz, I think this is number one on my hit list in terms of this movie not being nominated. And of course, you know, Vice and some other really not deserving nominees getting in there. Uh, I think it's it's a tragedy. Sure. Uh, you say 30 something, Scott, he's 28 years old. So, OK, uh, well, hope you, sorry, hope you feel, sorry, Bo. Hope you feel worse about yourself now. I'm kidding. I love your movie, Bo. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's a fantastic movie. It's such an interesting to hear you call two movies that we've talked about in this category as coming of age, because this one I get this is a movie is a coming of age film, but Thoroughbred Scott coming of age. So dark coming of age movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a teen movie. I I, I broadened it to teen. The, the characters are teens. That's true. They're very, very uh, well. Let's just say they maybe have some room for growth, but we'll leave it at that to talk about eighth grade. Great film. I don't know if I have any more to add. Everyone should go see this movie. I talk about, I'm so happy. Like a lot of my coworkers have seen this movie and I'm kind of surprised about it. And you know, of course they're not, they're like, Oh, it's great. But man, it's so hard to watch it because it's so cringy. And and which, which they're all like, yeah, no, it's supposed to be that way. I get it. But I'm just like, yeah, it's cringy. And it's really freaking good because it's cringy. Like it, yeah. nails it so is life life is cringy yeah same i wish my life were less cringy but that's another podcast probably i think we all do all right let's move on to adapted screenplay now i think we definitely would agree here that this is a, a stronger field than um we had with original screenplay this year so what did you go with for some of your honorable mentions oh yeah much harder to choose from I, or at least i should say not necessarily okay it actually wasn't harder to choose from i think that the problem here is that i think that probably the oscars did it a little bit better I think there are some nominees here. I think there are some missing, which I'm going to call out here. Uh, but then, of course, you have, uh, for me, there's an easy winner in this. And I know that you disagree because this isn't on your list at all. But that's okay. I think that to to steer away from your winner, your ultimate winner for this, I think that a movie that you didn't see that I'm really, really sad that you haven't seen because I just think you're going to love this movie whenever you do see it. And that's Love, Simon. I think that adapted screenplay based on uh, based on a novel, this movie, I, I love this movie. Scott. I, I was trying to find... I was, maybe I'm trying to shoehorn this into the conversation because it, it doesn't really come up anywhere else uh, in our conversations today and in our awards. But to me, if you're going to nominate it somewhere, it's got to be it's going to be for its screenplay. I think that the story that it tells, uh, and, you know, Nick Robinson's good. He's, he's not best actor worthy, I don't think, at least not yet. But he uh, he really does a great job in this movie. And a lot of it is the character that's created in the script. Uh, I'm forgetting right now what the the name of the book that it's based on and actually who adapted it for the screen. But Greg Berlanti is the director who's more well known for uh, something like you and also all the superhero movies on the CW or sorry, I shouldn't say movies, those TV shows. But to me, Love, Simon is a is a great coming of age rom-com about uh, a kid who's trying to come to terms with his sexuality and come out to his friends, to his family on his own terms, but ultimately uh, for one reason or another, isn't able to, and it's just a gorgeous film. And I've managed while I've been stalling here and vamping for myself, I've managed to find out uh, the book is Simon versus the homo sapien agenda, which is written by Becky, uh, Becky Albertalli. And it's re- adapted for the screen by two people. I've literally never heard of before. Isaac Aptiker and Elizabeth Berger. So there you go. Other honorable mentions. I think include here to kind of steer away maybe from the categories. Uh, I think that adapted screenplay uh, really was great for Annihilation as, as well. So uh, this is Alex Garland, who really does uh, all of the legwork for uh, writing and directing his films. Of course, he's basing it on a, a series of books that are escaping me right now. Scott, I don't know if you remember the name of them, but uh, this is all 
Uh, You mentioned it already. I think that it's really creative. Of course, it has its flaws. I think both of the movies that Alex Garland is best known for have their flaws, but this movie is still one that really resonates with me. The, the creativity and the, uh, I would say, I say originality, even though this is adapted screenplay, right? But the, the creativity and the originality of this movie is is really something. And and a lot of that is the world that's created in the script, not just on the screen through the direction and through the vision and the cinematography, but also through the script. Good choice. I mean, I I really like the movie and yeah, love Simon still haven't seen it. I know I, 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 I really need to see it, and I, I it just keeps slipping my mind. But hey, look look who's talking about a coming-of-age movie now. Okay, cool. Well, then let's move into my honorable mentions. I chose uh, you know a couple of movies which also pop up in your honorable mentions. I think Black Klansman and A Star is Born uh, both had outstanding screenplays. Black Klansman in particular, I think, was so incisive, so insightful in 2018 about you know a different type of racism than we are accustomed to seeing depicted on screen. I mean, we, uh, you know, we get the scenes, we get the KKK rallies, right? That's, that's what we're accustomed to seeing. But I think the more interesting thing that it probes is that sort of insidious racism that comes with David Duke and, and how he tries to take racism more mainstream um, and, uh, you know, appeal to a, a group of people in America who, uh, maybe have these unconscious biases and, and really play off of that without you know them really really realizing he's he's a politician more than anything right and obviously that feels very relevant nowadays that's all I'm gonna say but I think Spike Lee great job with the screenplay for this movie and then I also want to shout out Spider Man into the Spider Verse I think you know it's an animated movie sure but the screenplay I'd put it up there with with any screenplay this year in terms of the humor and the heart that it really shows. Um, Bill Lord, as always, doing an outstanding job. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great choice and a star is born as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the winner for me, uh, I think this is literally the first time we're not overlapping really at all here on uh, not necessarily just our winner, but just in terms of what we're thinking of as the best. Uh, of course, I thought that I think that your winner absolutely would have come up in my honorable mentions if you hadn't mentioned it. But my winner is Widows, right? Like this is uh, to, not to uh, not to bury or not not to spoil too much of our upcoming awards, but there's going to be a string of of widows uh, shout outs for me coming up in the next few awards here. But widows to me, you know, Steve McQueen directed. Uh, I think it was Steve McQueen and maybe Gillian Flynn who adapted the screenplay from a novel by someone whose name I'm forgetting right now. But this movie, the story here, I, I think it has its weaknesses and its flaws for sure. I think that you know, Twelve Years a Slave was a is a better directed film from Steve McQueen. But it doesn't lack, in my opinion, in terms of its narrative, its screenplay, as well as some of its acting. I think that's where it shines brightest. And I have to give a shout out for it. You know, I'm just got to know that you and I aren't necessarily the biggest Gillian Flynn fans. I think that neither of us are, are maybe as hot on Gone Girl or or even Sharp Objects as maybe other people have been. Uh, I think she might. Did she also write the screenplay for Girl on the Train? I think she might have done that as well. Oh, um, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I I. Bad movie and bad book. I could be wrong, so I apologize to Jillian Flynn if that's the case. Um, but the point is, I haven't always been a, the biggest fan of hers. And I don't think you have been either. But I think that she and Steve McQueen's collaboration here for Widows, they crushed it. I think they really nailed a great screenplay. There are some performances in particular that stand out. And it's not just the acting, although the acting is absolutely a huge part of it. And you're going to hear me talk about it here in a few minutes. But uh, I think that the screenplay here is also really good. Really, really good. Yeah, I love Widows. I just think maybe in terms of the screenplay, there was not as much character development as I would like to see, with with the exception of one character 
who we will talk about um, the performance of, of the person who plays his character very soon. Outrageous that she didn't get nominated. Absolutely outrageous. I didn't talk about this at the beginning, but this is, yeah. what the, this is my second biggest what the, what the heck moment. Well, it's funny. We'll, we'll get to it in just a sec, but none of the people who we're going to recognize for supporting actress were nominated for uh, the Oscars. So the Oscars, I mean, there's some good candidates in there, but they may, they, may have, uh, they may have screwed up on this one. But my choice for best adapted screenplay was Can You Ever Forgive Me? Of course, this is Nicole Hall of Center, um, very well-known screenwriter uh, and director as well um, in sort of independent cinema, I guess you would say. And I think that I thought that this was such a great script that she wrote for this movie um, about a hard-drinking, grouchy character who somehow becomes lovable thanks to, of course, the performance of Melissa McCarthy, but also, I think, you know, the screenplay and it's extremely observational in the way that it, you know, captures what it's like to be a lonely writer in New York. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to relate to this movie and, you know, creates two extremely memorable characters as well in Lee Israel and Jack Hawk. I mean, I think two of the most memorable characters in, in the movies this year and their their repartee, their banter with each other um, is delightful um and so yeah great job by nicole hall of center it's it's meaningful and enjoyable agreed like i said i mentioned it briefly but this would have been 100 percent my honorable mention if i had to if i had to only choose one and if you weren't already mentioning it for your winner i would have put it on here all right let's get into supporting actress then and talk about uh a bunch of people who the academy uh, didn't even recognize Hey, I'll let you take the people that our honorable mentions kind of overlap with here. Um, and to say the ones that have, are kind of different for me, I think Emily Blunt in A Quiet Place. I think that her she's uh, really, really good, Scott. Maybe I'm just like, maybe I'm just a fangirl of Emily Blunt at this point. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's true. I, no, I'll, have to, I'll have to introspect on that and get back to everyone. But Emily Blunt is amazing in A Quiet Place. I think that this movie probably, I mean, everyone liked, I think like everyone liked this movie when it came out and maybe because it came out at the beginning of April, it's just kind of been forgotten now. Uh, I feel like it was kind of on the cusp of a lot of things at the Oscars and never really got any sort of recognition uh, beyond, I don't know, actually maybe it got some sound uh, recognition. I'm not sure, but regardless, I think that Emily Blunt is fantastic. It's not a crime that she got left off supporting actress in my opinion. Like I, I'm sure I could come up with five people who could have been nominated ahead of her. But the problem is, is that, I don't think the Oscars came up with five people who were better than her. Um, So I think that she probably should have been nominated relative to the list that was there. Uh, Other people who I thought were really good, Blake Lively in, um, oh, geez, a simple favor. There we go. Uh, Blake Lively is really good. I think I could also be a Blake Lively fan. So maybe I'm a little biased, but uh, Blake Lively was standout in that movie where I thought that a lot of, a lot of other parts of it were pretty lackluster. Um, And (laughs) to say the least, um uh and then michelle yo from crazy rich asians mm. I, I have a i really enjoyed crazy rich asians i had a really hard time fitting it into any sort of conversation around awards i think that any nomination that it gets is almost kind of tr- just trying to give a nod to how good like the cultural landmark that the movie was right because i'm not sure that there's any particular parts where i'm like mm, that's it like that this is one of the best things in this category for the year. That being said, I think Michelle Yeoh is a really strong performance in this movie. And, you know, she's obviously more famous for very different kinds of roles, but she crushes it as, as uh, Nick's mom in this movie, and you know, is fierce and sharp and, and venomous. I think is even a good way to describe her. And she does a really, really great job. And that's why she is writing out my honorable mentions list. Yeah, she, she's great. Um, and 
you know, I, 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 I really like Blake Lively as an actress. I think this movie was a stink box, but weirdly enough, it's actually going to come up later on on the episode, too. But we'll uh, we'll get to that shortly. But uh, for my honorable mentions, you know, someone who has been recognized, I believe, at the uh, the SAG Awards, she at least did get a nomination. That's Margot Robbie in Mary Queen of Scots. Doesn't have a lot of screen time, but for me, that's really what we're talking about with the supporting actress. And, but she she makes the most of it um, as Queen Elizabeth uh, really gives a human edge to this character. And, and her scene with Saoirse Ronan at the end of the movie is is very memorable. Someone who I'm, I'm really kind of bummed is not getting recognition is Mackenzie Davis in Tully, um, who plays the title character. Really just a effervescent and like she lights up the screen the second that she comes on um comes on the screen and and i think that her appeal as an actress she she her appeal as an actress captures the appeal of this character totally right to marlo charlie's theron's character in the movie um just a, a a very magnetic personality but really underneath maybe is is has that that personality is covering up a lot of uh, insecurities um and then finally, you know, someone that I didn't expect to get nominated, but you know how much I love the performance by Anne Hathaway in Ocean's 8. Um, in a movie, you know, stacked with great actresses, um, for me, she acted everybody else off the screen in this really hilarious role as Daphne Kluger, a glitzy uh, movie star who becomes embroiled uh, in in the heist that, that Sandra Bullock plans. And, you know, some would say she's playing herself here, but... Regardless, um, she does a great job and, and has some of the best lines in this movie, again, as this sort of ditzy movie star. And I think that um, she deserves recognition because this isn't a movie that anyone's talking about, nor, nor necessarily should they be for award stuff. But, you know, comedies and lighthearted movies like this don't get recognized a lot at the Oscars. And I think she definitely deserves a shout out for her work here. Yeah, I think that's really fair. Margot Robbie, I totally wholeheartedly agree. Mackenzie Davis, I, you know, I think that no one saw this movie. Scott. I just think no one saw this movie. I think that's the only answer. Uh, unfortunately, it came out in that sort of awful, awful time period between Infinity War and Deadpool 2 that like surely just no one saw this movie. Like, I don't even think it showed for a month in theaters in Boston. All right. Well, we made the joke earlier that we need to say the name at the same time, but I think we actually should say the name at the same time here because I want to just go shout the the name from my roof and hope that the Oscars can actually hear us. But so, shall I count us down then? Sure, we can we can try. I don't know how well it's going to work, but we'll do it. <laughs> Three, two, one. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Debicki. Come on, guys. Elizabeth <laughs> Debicki, this best supporting role for a female. You know, look, look Regina King. Gave a great speech to the Golden Globes. I don't know why she's being like she had a great performance. She did, but I don't know why. I I, I just don't. I guess I just don't get why she's the one uh, who's just cleaning up for supporting actress at the award shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a good performance. I don't think that it's a Oscar winning performance in my opinion. But Elizabeth Debicki's performance is an Oscar winning performance, Scott. And you want to talk about why we think that is? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked about it just a second ago. I think that the screenplay for Widows maybe lacked character development, with the exception of one character, and I think that is Elizabeth Debicki's character in this movie. I think the the transition that we see uh, her undergo from, you know, the beginning of the movie when she's really this sort of fragile woman who has been the subject of abuse by her husband, but then really, like, comes into her own when her husband is killed and she gets involved with the you know, the heist that, that Viola Davis and the rest of the crew is planning. 
And it's it becomes really this the whole movie for me it becomes sort of an empowerment tale for uh, for Elizabeth Debicki's character and her you know she she plays she strikes the right note every single scene um, in terms of the way that this character develops gradually uh, into by the end is a complete powerhouse um, as they're uh, you know carrying out this heist and can go toe to toe with Viola Davis who obviously is a very commanding presence and her character here is is equally as commanding and I you know she she's outstanding in the movie um, really just blew me away um, in a cast that is I mean loaded we're going to talk about it in a sec with in supporting actor as well but uh, you know, when you look at the cast, to say I think that Elizabeth Debicki is the standout here is is a lot of credit to her because there are a lot of of talented people in this cast. Yeah, absolutely agree. Elizabeth Debicki. I am familiar with her from watching The Night Manager, which is the first thing that I ever saw her in. I don't know if she's been in other stuff, but that was kind of what brought the her man on. from Uncle. The man from Uncle. I got it. Okay. Yeah. So she was in that, and then, but I I haven't seen that unfortunately. But she, I mean, she just dominates the screen when she's on it. And it's, it's so interesting because you're right. Like from the start of this movie, it's a very reserved performance that, you know, she's clearly, I mean, the situations that she's found herself in both, you know, even, you know, you talked about this abusive relationship that she had with her, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to say deceased husband, but, uh, but also you see that that's the exact same situation she was when she was growing up and even now with her mother. Uh, and, you see her overcome that over the course of the movie. And it's, a, it's just, it's a great performance. It's spectacular. Yeah. Such a satisfying character arc for sure. And yeah. plays it great. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. And just to circle back around to Mackenzie Davis, the good news, Scott, is that I think she's going to be in some movies that people are actually going to see soon. Cause she's in the Terminator re- reboot. Oh, uh, I saw that. Yeah. She's, she's playing a Connor, right? No, she's playing Grace. Who's like a soldier assassin. I think she's probably okay. the antagonist of the movie. And then she's in a horror movie. That's at least being executive produced by Steven Spielberg called the turning that's coming out mm. either this year or next year. I don't remember when, but she's, right. she's got some, and she's the lead role in that. So she's uh she's got some more movies coming down the pipeline. I can dig it. Yeah. All right. Supporting actor. Let's move on. Um, a lot of good candidates here. Yeah, absolutely. So supporting actor, People already know that uh, that we're going to talk more about widows. So to steer clear of widows for at least a brief moment here, I think that the Oscars may have gotten it right for a few of these. Like for example, uh, Adam Driver, I think is a f- fantastic performance in Black Klansman. I think Michael B. Jordan in Black and in, in Black Panther, you know, spectacular performance. I don't want to. I mean, I could sit here and talk about Michael B. Jordan as Eric Killmonger for as long as our listeners are willing to put up with me. But to talk about something maybe a little bit more original, I think that. Brian Tyree Henry, not from Widows. I think that, I mean, he's good in Widows, but I think uh, his standout 10 minutes in, and if Bill Street could talk or is something really special. I think that I, I struggle to maybe not, I, maybe I shouldn't put this in a supporting role. And, and there's another one that I'll talk about in a second that I wasn't sure whether it should be in a supporting role. And that's Ben Foster and leave no trace. He might as, he probably is a lead actor. If I'm being fair, Scott, and feel free to jump in here if you want to, but I think his performance is marvelous. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think he's going to top either either category. But if you put him in the supporting role, um, he's definitely worth an honorable mention. Yeah, I think it it could be debated. I mean, I, there's really no criteria it seems for what what the difference is, other than you know just how the studios campaign for for the roles. But yeah, he's great. Sure. And then another performance that could again could also be a lead actor performance uh, is Steve Carell in Beautiful Boy. Not the movie that shall not be named. Um, I think that his performance in Welcome Beautiful to Boy. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, did not see that one, and I'm glad I didn't waste my time on it. But Steve Carell is spectacular and beautiful boy. Uh, I, I've seen a couple negative reviews of this movie that talk about how he just kind of yells a lot and isn't very like his depth isn't there. I don't know what these people are talking about. I think this is a spectacular performance. I'm honestly really sad to hear him, his comments around the fact that he's going to go back and do comedies again. Cause I just think he's such a fantastic dramatic actor. I, I haven't seen welcome to Marwin, So I'm not going to lump that one into it. But if you group that with, I think he is good advice, whether you, you know, whether you like the movie or not, uh, I think he does. He's a good, he, he puts in a good performance and he's put in a couple of really good dramatic performances of late. And I think, I think that he, it's a shame if he does transition back to kind of doing more comedies than dramas. But I understand if he does. But yeah, those two, you know, those performances alongside the kind of the Oscar nominated performances are all really strong for me. And then, you know, of course, I think our listeners might notice that I'm not mentioning Mahershala Ali because, you know, that is where one I took a stand on. And and I'm only thinking about that in terms of a best actor. Yeah. And I think that you're perfectly justified in doing so. But to shout out a couple honorable mentions for me, uh, Josh Hamilton was great in eighth grade as Kayla's father. Um, Really, you know, some, some great scenes. When he's out there by the fire pit, of course, is one where we just see all of his emotions come out. But, you know, in general, just being sort of the the goofy, awkward dad, um, he, he pulls it off really well. You know, the scene where they're in the car and and Kayla's just telling him to stop, like, doing anything, basically. Like, he, he can't, there's no way that he can please her. Um, and his, you know, reactions during this scene are, are pretty great as well. So, Great, great job by him. And, you know, the way he plays off of, of Elsie Fisher, obviously great. And then Richard E. Grant. I mean, he was recognized by the Academy for his work in, in Can You Ever Forgive Me? But again, I talked about it with Mackenzie Davis, really magnetic character that lights up the screen when, as soon as he comes on. Uh, and I, I've talked about it already, but his scenes with Melissa McCarthy are great. And then I also uh, shouted out someone who's actually going to be your winner um, so why don't we just uh, talk about him now and, and maybe one of the most memorable eight or nine minute performances in recent memory. Yeah, you know, we talked I talked briefly about Brian Tyree Henry, who is also in Widows, but for his you know 10 minute cameo in If Beale Street Could Talk and very memorable. I tell you, doesn't hold a candle to how memorable this performance is, in my opinion. And that's Daniel Kaluuya in Widows. Holy crap. I will probably have nightmares until I die about his eight or nine minutes uh, in particular, this uh, one particular scene that he's in a basketball gym mm-hmm. with some people who have, we'll say made some mistakes uh, in, in how they've uh, handled. <laughs> some of the, yeah. How, how, how some business was handled and my, Oh my, is he, Oh, he is terrifying in this scene. And it's, it's such a far cry from something like, you know, Black Panther, where he stars as, as sort of a more heroic role or and then, of course, Get Out, which is what he's known for. Best actor nomination last year. And, you know, this is a role that is on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, we talk about this. Uh, we bring this up a lot in terms of an idea around actors taking on different roles and ones that are less comfortable. And man, you can see that he's got all the range you could you could possibly want from an actor here when you compare this to something like Get Out, because he not only does he freak you out he then you know delivers in the final moments of that scene where he just guns down both these kids uh i say kids because they aren't very old they're probably teenagers in the movie and you know he's ruthless it's absolutely brutal and it's haunting how how you know mesmerizing the performances yeah i mean i agree i had it in my honorable mentions as well i mean i think for me this is a true supporting performance Uh, if you want to talk about what i consider a supporting performance you know in terms of the amount of time he's on screen is is very small but he makes such an incredible impact. Uh, you're right in, in you know that basketball gym scene, but in a couple other scenes as well. 
Um, and I, you know, for my pick, I also went with someone who I think it's, you know, it's a true supporting performance. He's not in a ton of the movie, but you certainly remember his character. And, you know, actually when I saw the movie that this gentleman is in, the first thing I texted you after I came out of the movie was, I cannot believe this guy is not getting more Oscar buzz. Uh, but I think he's really being overshadowed unfairly, in my opinion, by, you know, three actresses in the movie who are all nominated this year at the Oscars. And that movie is, of course, the favorite. And I'm talking about Nicholas Holt, um, who was fantastic um, in his in his small supporting role as sort of this member of the Queen's Court, who he, he likes to think of himself on the same level as as Rachel Weisz and, and Emma Stone's characters. He, you know, maybe can talk the talk in terms of his like witty banter and, you know, savage sense of humor again, to use that phrase, but continuously finds himself outfoxed and outfoiled by these women in, in you know, some, somewhat hilarious fashion in, in multiple scenes. And, you know, I, I he I've seen him in, in movies before, but he's not someone who has really stood out to me. But man, as good as the other performances by the actresses are in this movie, his was the one that I walked away with on my on my brain. Yeah, you and Christian Harloff agree. Yeah, that's true. My, me and Darth, uh, I, this may be the one, one of the few things that me and Darth Harloff agreed about in movies this year because he also loved. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. I mean, certainly not your review of Vice, that's for sure. But I think that Nicholas Holt is absolutely right. I think. You know, Yorgos Lanthimos, as good as a screenwriter director that he is, and I think he is a good one. I don't think the favorite is anywhere near his best. But man, he got a glut of talent for for the favorite. Um, And, you know, it's getting a lot of nominations in acting because of that. And it's a real shame that, you know, in this category, granted, very strong category, in my opinion, that he's also not getting a little bit of recognition. Agreed. Right. Let's move on now to best actress. We're into the getting into the nitty gritty now. Uh. Who did you pick? A, a, a loaded category this year, maybe not quite as as loaded as last year, but still a lot of great talent to choose from. Yeah, we got a lot of overlap here, uh, and you know, for 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 the sake of that, I'll only I'll try not to mention too much of the overlap, uh, especially with your winner, because of course she's on my honorable mentions list. But you know, one that I there are a couple that I don't see on your list here, Lady Gaga. I think that I think there are plenty of uh, I, I hear and understand the qual- like the question marks around her performance and there's just so many elements of this movie that are spectacular and you know maybe she's not one of the elements of the movie that stands out relative to the rest of it but that being said i think it's still one of the best performances of the year for the actress category she's fantastic turns out she can sing which i mean i don't know scott if you knew that but lady gaga can sing that's crazy (laughs) yeah imagine that um but you know she can't not only does she sing i think she puts in a really great performance as Allie in this film uh you know Scott, I recognize what you're what you're going to say or what you're thinking probably in your head is, you know, you you just can't believe some of the some of, like some part of her performance because, you know, she's Lady Gaga, like she she's been successful. She can't talk. About, I mean, yes, may, maybe she had struggles early on in her career and that's where she's pulling this performance from. And that's what I would say she's pulling this performance from. But you don't buy in as much uh, when you hear her say on screen like, oh, like people think I'm ugly and that's why they don't want to like listen to my music, you know, whether, whether you believe that or not, look, I, I I get what you're saying. I think that is an experience that she might've had earlier on in her career. And I think that that's where she's pulling that performance part of that, or at least that part of the performance from, but you know, over the course of the film, as you see kind of the, uh, like, I guess almost asymmetric in terms of their, the exact opposites of it. They're almost like mirror, uh, trajectories of, you know, Bradley Cooper's, uh, career and Lady Gaga's career in this movie, her performance as the movie goes on is, 
is spectacular. And I honestly, I think it's spectacular from the beginning. It's one of the best performances. It's not my best performance. And, you know, uh, you know, and our listeners will know how strongly I feel about our best performance of, uh, or what will be my best performance of the year. But she's right up there. And then another one worth noting, although I think that the supporting actress in this film overshadows her, and that's Charlize Theron. I think she's really great in Tully. That being said, I think Mackenzie Davis overshadows her a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I will note that while my while your winner didn't make my honorable mentions list, it wasn't a conscious decision. I mean, you know that I, I'm a huge fan of the performance that you're going to talk about in a second as well. But I, I kind of left it to you because I, I knew that uh, that's fair be your choice. But to talk about my honorable mentions, um, first, I want to shout out somebody who is in a movie that we haven't discussed. I just recently saw it. I, I will talk about it um, next time on the show. But Felicity Jones is fantastic in On the Basis of Sex, playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Really enjoyed this movie, this biopic uh, in general. um, I think it is a a far better biopic than uh, the one that is nominated for Best Picture, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. But uh, that's neither here nor there, I guess. But yeah, she's fantastic in this movie, portraying, uh, you know, a really iconic American figure uh, and giving her the uh, the respectful treatment that I think she deserves in the telling of, of the story uh, of how she sort of uh, broke onto the scene as an attorney fighting gender discrimination. So great job by Felicity Jones in this movie. I want to shout out the great duo of Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook in Thoroughbreds. You know, I, I go back and forth about which performance I liked more, but you know, the good thing is here I can honor both of them. And I think they play off of each other very well. And uh, the, their personalities, um, you know, again, they change over the course of the movie. Um, but what doesn't change is the power of their performances Two extremely promising young actresses. And then speaking of promising young actresses, Elsie Fisher also absolutely deserves a shout out as Kayla. I, you know, she's someone going forward that I'm not sure if she'll ever be able to top this role just because I think she's going to be associated with this role for, for a long time in her career, but that, you know, speaks to how memorable she is as Kayla. Uh, I mean, she creates a character like many people we, we probably know or, or, you know, have run across in our, in our lifetime um, and portrays it in such an authentic and evocative way. So uh, a, a very impressive performance from, from the teenager. Yeah, absolutely. I agree that I think all of these people, um, could have easily made my honorable mentions list. They're strong performances. I haven't seen Felicity Jones and on the basis of sex, but I'm hoping to. I'm actually hoping to see it before we do record our next episode. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's. Why don't you uh, reveal the your inevitable choice? <laughs> yeah, inevitable. Maybe too strong of a word. It's not like there weren't performances that were probably, arguably at least, close to her. To her, but Glenn Close. My goodness. I I know that I liked the wife more than you did, Scott. I get that. Um, but Glenn Close is absolutely masterful in this movie. Again, you know, your winner and then a couple of these honorable mentions that we've had, I think they're really strong performances. And in another year, they absolutely could have won. But Glenn Close gets it for me this year. And and people are talking about how if she wins the Oscar, it's like a career uh, achievement award, which I just actually I just disagree with. I think like I mean, yes, I think her career is worthy of an Oscar, but I think this performance is worthy of an Oscar. I think it's better than than Lady Gaga. I think it's better than your winner. And I know that, you know, you may disagree, but Glenn Close here, I think she deserves it. Her performance in The Wife. Uh, not only is it a role that's just perfect for this period of time, uh, you know, of course, it's, it's it's a role that is meant to look backwards on a time in history that, you know, maybe isn't that different from the one we live in today, but is is cemented in history. Right. And and what you see uh, the plight 
uh, or, and the struggle of women to overcome, you know, or, and, and step out of the shadow of people who, of men who aren't better than them, but, but just by a nature of society have, have taken a, a higher pedestal or sit on a higher pedestal than them. And that struggle over the course of the film comes out and Glenn Close is just, I mean, she's marvelous in this movie. Yeah. Again, like I said, no disrespect to her by not shutting her out. I think she's fantastic. Okay, though, um, my pick is, uh, you know, and I, I can honestly say I never thought that I would say this, Scott, but my best actress of the year uh, was Melissa McCarthy. And can you ever forgive me? You know, this was one of my most anticipated movies coming into the year, and it absolutely delivered. And I think that what Melissa McCarthy does with, you know, I, I've described the character earlier, but making this character not only likable, but relatable um, is is an incredible feat. Um but she still, there, there, that sense of humor is still there. There's, there's a great wry sense of humor about this movie and about her performance. And I think uh, it's, it's just spectacular. Um, and again, she, she disappears into the role in a way that I, I didn't think Melissa McCarthy was really capable of. So maybe the element of surprise contributes a little bit. But also, you know, she's nominated for the Oscar. You had her on honorable mentions. I think it's an objectively great performance. Hey, agree. You know, I never thought that I would ever enjoy watching a Melissa McCarthy movie. So there you have <laughs> yeah, it. There you have it. Uh, okay, best actor. Another really tough field. Um, who you got in your honorable mentions? Yeah, you know, it absolutely is a tough field. I think that, you know, the person that you're going to choose as your winner would absolutely make my honorable mentions list. I think that Timothy Chalamet and Beautiful Boy should should make this list. Personally, I think that, I, you know, he didn't get nominated for in best actor category, which is, you know, another one of my top five WTF moments from Oscar nominations. Having seen this movie recently, I agree with a lot of the people who are saying it's ridiculous that he hasn't been nominated. I think that John David Washington for Black Klansman, he got nominated at some other reward shows. He's not getting that credit at the Oscars. He does a really great job, though. I think that his uh, Ron Stallworth is I mean, I mean, granted, look, I don't know Ron Stallworth in real life, obviously, but this character is an incredibly memorable one. And it's because though of the way that he plays it, he, he clearly is a, is going to be, you know, if not already is a really strong actor. Will he live up to the, to the reputation and the career of his father, Denzel? That's, you know, that's only time will tell that. But I think that, you know, if this is the start of that career uh, in terms of notable performances that people will, you know, watch and, and recognize you know, I think that's worthy of, of that kind of initiation point and definitely worthy of, of his father's career. It's a great performance. And then kind of, I also have the duo from from Green Book, Scott. I know that that you have your problems with the movie, but, you know, in my opinion, the acting is not there's no problem with the acting. at all. I think both Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali are fan, phenomenal in Green Book. And you know, if you had to point to two things that are the best parts of this movie, I think that these are these are the two things that I would point to. Yeah, I would point to them as well. I mean, I didn't like the movie as much as you, but I don't have a bad word to say about the acting at all. For my honorable mentions, Michael B. Jordan, uh, your guy, got in there um, for Creed Two. I think even more so than in the in the first movie, he makes Adonis such a well-rounded human character. Which no no disrespect to Sylvester Stallone, but I'm not sure that you know he he quite had the chops to do that with rocky although you know we love rocky as well but uh michael b jordan just brings something totally different to a protagonist in, in this series of movies and you know obviously extremely talented uh i also had the person you chose as a winner 
But man, I, I want to talk about Tom Cruise. You knew he had to be in here for me. Mm-hmm. It's so it's just funny to me to hear people talk about oh Rami Malek. Look at it's amazing what he did as you know Freddie Mercury. It's amazing you know that he put on this mustache. But Tom Cruise broke his leg. People, he learned how to fly a helicopter. And yeah, I understand that you can't necessarily translate commitment to the role to the actual performance as well. But Tom Cruise gives it his all in this movie and in all of the Mission Impossible movies and in all of the movies that he's in. Um, and it's just a crime to me that he hasn't been acknowledged for you know just one of these action movies, whether it's American Made, whether it's you know a previous Mission Impossible, whether it's Edge of Tomorrow. Like at some point, we're going to have to look back and acknowledge that. Yeah, he's a movie star, but he's also a great actor. Um, and we were we were silly to dismiss his performances in these movies because they are just, you know, genre movies. And he he deserves so much credit. And I, I honestly almost put him as the winner in this category because of that. But I went with another performance instead. You know, Scott, again, similar to what you were just saying a moment ago about not, you know, no, you know, no complaint about uh, Tom, uh, about a person getting, you know, getting into your nominations. And I, uh, and when you were talking about, you know, you not shouting out Glenn Close, I feel the same way about Tom Cruise. I mean, the guy just does it movie after movie after movie. And, and he, he doesn't get any recognition for it from, you know, from award shows. And you know what? He doesn't care about that. You know, yeah. Obviously I'm sure he'd be really excited about getting a nomination and, you know, God forbid, win an award. But I think that that's not what he cares about. And that's okay. And that's good because he's never going to get it probably. Yeah. Um, but that being said, he's going to get credit uh, on this on this show. And that's where it counts the most. Obviously, Tom knows this. Uh, we just need to start talking more and maybe we can get him on the show. Well, uh, Tom Cruise, feel, fr- feel free to reach out. Feel free to reach out. Uh, we, we'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> I'm about it. Yeah, no, Tom Cruise is amazing. Tom Cruise is absolutely amazing. Uh, and I was just thinking about this too. I feel similarly about Ryan Reynolds in terms of like actors who will literally never get credit for the work that they do, mm-hmm. uh, at least in terms of the movies that they typically are creating. But uh, I think Ryan Reynolds and Tom Cruise are in a category of they do a very particular type of film these days and they will never get credit for it and they absolutely crush it. They absolutely crush it. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, you know, my winner, and if you talk about comparing things to Rami Malik and you put on a mustache and he did a really freaking good job lip syncing. Uh, you know, someone who didn't lip sync and didn't put on a mustache uh, for his for his role. And that's Bradley Cooper. The guy grew a beard. I mean, for goodness sake, he didn't grow a mustache. He grew a beard. Uh, he grew out his hair. He learned to play the guitar. He learned to sing. This guy did so much. This guy did so much. And, you know, I take your point about, you know, do, like learning certain things doesn't and like commit, quote unquote, like commitment to the role doesn't translate to the performance that you actually uh, output finally. But Bradley Cooper, not only does he learn stuff does he you know learn learn new skills uh, refine certain traits and scott you know better than anyone that i am not that big of a bradley cooper fan pre i don't know october whatever of 2018 when this movie came out but man oh man he was fantastic in this movie best performance of the year it you know i can't especially given his his snub for best director i think that it's 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 criminal if he doesn't win best act best actor in my mind i don't think that he will i'm not I'm not a high or anything like that. I do think that either Remy Malik or Christian Bale will win that award, but they shouldn't. I think that Bradley Cooper should. And I know that we've already talked a lot about a star is born, so I don't need to wax lyrical about this performance any more than I already have. Yeah. And to your point, even though, you know, commitment doesn't translate to performance, like it does add something when you're just sitting there and you know that that's actually Bradley Cooper playing the guitar and that's actually Bradley Cooper that we're hearing. You know, it's not just, 
Freddie Mercury's voice overlaying, you know, what's going on on screen. So it, it does add something, uh, you know, that layer of authenticity, which I think makes the performance even better for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and to be fair, like, okay, Remy Malik, yes, he's lip syncing. He get he nails the mannerisms of Freddie. You know, I'm sure he sat in a room and this is commitment, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shrugging this off. Like he probably sat in a room and watched, you know, whatever live footage from however many concerts he could pull from Freddie Mercury. And that's commitment. Like I get that. Like that's the role that was put in front of him. That's the commitment he made. I just don't think that the performance lives up to what Bradley Cooper did, or for that matter, what you're about to talk about. And what I'm about to talk about is John Cho in our joint favorite movie of the year, Searching. I think for me, the reason why I chose this movie or why I chose this performance is because this movie lives or dies by how John Cho plays this role. And, you know, we talk about this movie is technically ingenious. You know, it tells a great story. It has a great directorial vision. But I don't think it's too much to say that with a lesser actor, the movie would not have worked. But it doesn't have a lesser actor. It has John Cho. And even though the movie is resting on his shoulders, he kills it every at every single step. And he makes us care about, he makes us care about Margot being found. Uh, we want Margot to be found because we care about John Cho's character. And I mean, even though he's just sitting at the computer screen or, you know, staring into the screen for the most of the movie, it's an emotionally involved performance unlike any given by an actor this year. Uh, And so I think it's just such an impressive feat that he keeps us uh, 100% with him all the way through this movie. I totally agree, Scott. And, you know, he was on my honorable mentions list. I could easily see a debate for him uh, being in in the winner category, which you've put him in. Uh, I just do think Bradley Cooper edged him out a bit. All right, let's move on to the final two categories in the traditional Oscar section of the show. Best director, who are your honorable mentions? Well, Scott, I'm pretty sure we're going to land on the same person for who wins this category. And, you know, maybe our honorable mentions will vary a little bit. I think that of people who, you know, aren't getting the recognition from from the Oscars, I think uh, we have Deborah Granick, who, you know, I have hasn't come up that often, but is one of my favorite movies of last year. And that's Leave No Trace and her her direction in that movie, you know, kind of mentoring uh, Thomasine McKenzie and her in her role in the movie. And then also just, you know, cr- laying out and creating the vision for what this film becomes on screen. Really, really spectacular. I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And then, of course, Bradley Cooper. Uh, my other honorable mention for this one's got to be got to be Brad Bradley here. I think that I watched a bunch of I mean, and, you know, this is a little bit of bias. because I'm not saying other movies don't do this exact same thing. I just don't see it. But I watched a bunch of like of the uh, extra footage that they have on the retail release with him you know directing lady gaga and other cast members of the show and also working with matthew libatique for the cinematography and and the guy it's his first time directing uh, at least a feature-length movie and i would assume it's the first time directing period but the guy's got a talent for it he's you know and he's really really good at it and i i just can't wait to see what he directs next you know i think he does like i already mentioned I, i mean he was my best actor of the year just a moment ago Uh, i'm more excited that being said, I'm more excited for what he's going to direct next than I am what he's going to act in next. And I think that's reflective of just what I was able to see in the, you know, both on screen, right. And, and what you can in- intuit from what's happening on screen, but also what you're seeing in that, in that extra footage. And again, I want to say, it's not like these other directors aren't doing whatever he's doing. It's just that I, maybe it's a difference is that I saw it. Yeah. I want to shout out uh, Bo Burnham because I think, you know, I was so impressed with his directorial vision in eighth grade, you know, being a first time director the unique style that he brought to that movie and, you know, the degree of difficulty with some of the things that he used the camera to do in eighth grade was really impressive to see from a first time director. 
And speaking of first-time directors, somebody on both of our honorable mentions list was Anish Shiganti. Uh, you know, again, to talk about searching, we've said everything that can be said about this movie, but uh, an ingenious movie. And Anish Shiganti, it was really his passion project, and he deserves a lot of credit for doing what it takes to get this movie made. Um, and, I, you know, I'm really glad that it was. And finally, Spike Lee. I mean, it is insane to me that this is his first Oscar nomination ever. Like, how do you not nominate the man for do the right thing, one of the best movies I've ever seen. But he's here now, he's been recognized now, and justifiably so, I think, for uh, creating a really hot-button movie and, and really finely observed and, and wise movie about the time that we're living in in America in Black Klansmen. He, he's a fantastic director, and, uh, you know, better late than never, I guess, when, it, when, it, when, it, when, we, when we're talking about recognition for him. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. All these people make it on my list as well. We have a joint winner again, however, uh, and why don't you reveal who that is, Scott? Yeah, Scott, you know, it's it's about to be a, an all-Roma show, I think, and, and it's fair to say that <laughs> Alfonso Cuaron is a very worthy Best Director of the Year. I, you know, again, I talked about how I was upset that Bradley Cooper got snubbed from a nomination. That being said, I don't think that he should win Best Director over Alfonso Cuaron. What he's able to do, I already talked about it when I talked about him in cinematography. He is the star of this movie, Scott. His vision, everything... It's it's him. It's his it's his story. He's telling it on screen. He's telling it in the way that he directs, you know, his actors and actresses in this movie. And it's it's something to behold. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. He's my choice as well, even though I mean, I didn't recognize him for cinematography. I think I explained why, but he's head and shoulders above the pack for me here. The attention to detail and the meticulous nature of the film uh, and really just the beating heart that he brings to the movie with, you know, given his personal connection to it, shine throughout every single shot. Um, and so I don't think much more needs to be said, especially because we're about to talk about this movie again. But before we do that, why don't we give some honorable mentions in the best picture? Um, I think, I think, first of all, I think it's important to note here what we're talking about is best, objectively best, right? We're not talking about what our favorite may be. Y'all, you all know what our favorites are from watching Mm-hmm. from listening to the favorite movies episode. And, and obviously there's going to be a lot of overlap here, but we both ended up going with a movie that wasn't our number one on our list um, for best picture, just because again, of the sheer craftsmanship involved. So what are some of the movies that uh, just missed it uh, for you when it comes to best picture? You know, I think that you can kind of get a sense of what those are going to be based on what we've talked about the most yeah. during the last, you know, the last, however long it's been that we've been going over these awards here. So when, you know, we've been talking about movies like searching, right? Like, but I mean, everyone who listens to the podcast knows that that was our, both of our favorite movie from last year. Uh, for me, it wasn't even close uh, for you. It, you know, it was a, it was a coin flip maybe between uh, this movie and then another movie that you've been talking about eighth grade. Uh, you know, a star is born for me again. I talked about how, you know, I rewatched this movie. I'm like, should it have even been higher on my list? It's such a good film. Uh, Black Klansman, it's come up a lot. Widows, it's come up a lot. There's spectacular performances on and off the camera in all of these movies, but just none of them, none of them in terms of best, the best category, hold a candle to Roma. Yeah, I mean, you know, my honorable mentions, I also had uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And, and Spider-Man, of course, I would throw in there as well. But I agree. Mm-hmm. Roma, um, a spectacular film, all of the hype that it has gotten has been justified. I don't understand people saying, and and to be fair, I think this is a pretty small minority, people saying that this movie is boring because it is just utterly captivating from the beginning and it's just true filmmaking on display in every single scene. I can't give enough credit to Alfonso Cuaron, 
this movie uh, deserves to be seen more than any movie. I mean, I think this is the essential movie for 2018, though, of course, I I want everyone to see Searching as well and and Into the Spider-Verse and all the movies we've talked about. But, I mean, it's right there on your Netflix. So if you haven't watched it yet, what are you doing? They're being silly. That's what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. That wraps up our discussion of the traditional Oscar categories. Roma was both of our pick for Best Picture. It is nominated, has the most nominations. So maybe the Oscars will do the right thing, but I'm not holding out any hope. But when we come back after a short break, we'll be picking some categories in, we'll be picking some winners in categories that we created, like Breakthrough Performance and Scenes of the Year. Be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Next up, Scott and I decided to go outside the realm of traditional Oscar categories to honor some worthy moments in film that we haven't been able to thus far. Scott, we'll start, we'll start off with best breakout performance. What fresh face stunned you with their foray into the film world this year? Yeah, there were there were a couple, right? I, I, I maybe it was ironic. I feel like I had the uh, broader spectrum of, of honorable mentions coming up to this point. And then on the, in this category, I, I think that you have a few more than I do that you want to throw out there. For me, I kind of really ca- came down to two major, major people. And then there was one on the side that, you know, maybe if I'd seen one of her other movies that you saw that I didn't quite get around to, it would have even been a higher or, or closer uh, contest between, you know, the other two people who I'm going to talk about in a second. But Cynthia Erivo, I thought was really fantastic in Widow's you know, not not one of the lead performances by any stretch of the imagination. And my goodness, we talked all about the supporting performances already uh, earlier on in the, in the show. But I think she's someone who, again, even relative to the other supporting actors and actresses in this in this movie, she has a particular supporting role. Uh, obviously, not counting Daniel Kaluuya in that, who's literally on the movie for like a handful of minutes. But Cynthia Revo kind of comes in halfway through the movie. It feels like, and and what she does is she leaves a really strong impression on you on what her what she's capable of. I, I know she was also in. Um, bad times at the El Royale, which I have not yet gotten around to seeing, although I'm hoping again, hoping to see that very soon. But to me, Scott, I mean, she was one of the top three or four people in terms of having in terms of having a breakout year. Yeah, I, lo- I loved her performance in Widows. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned bad times at the El Royale. She has an even much she has a much more substantial role in that movie and really gets to show off her talents. You know, she's primarily known as a screen act- or as a stage actress, rather. Uh, and she gets to show off her uh, her singing voice in Bad Times at the El Royale, in addition to her acting ability and the way that she uh, she plays with plays off with Jeff Bridges in Bad Times at the El Royale. They have good chemistry together, and their dynamic is is one of the most engaging parts of that movie. And so, yeah, I, I can only add praise for her. Um, you know, not perhaps a younger actress or actor like we're going to talk about with some of our other choices, but. Uh, kind of like Brian Tyree Henry, um, really had a breakthrough year in film, despite this being later on in her career. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned younger actresses or, or actors uh, that are kind of going to dominate the rest of our conversation here, because my actual honorable mention, it, it really came down to two people. And I think one of them had a much strong, like in retrospect, had a much stronger performance uh, in her respective movie. But that being said, I think that Thomasine McKenzie, who, who had a, lead role in Leave No Trace, which was one of my favorite movies last year, 
still had a very, very strong performance. And I think it has to be said was a breakthrough for her. You know, her name is now getting dropped left and right, you know, rumored to be attached in several movies and, and, you know, if not already attached to some others, I haven't done too much research on what's in the pipeline for her, but her performance was fantastic. And to say that there was one performance that was better than her from a breakout perspective is, is to take nothing away from what I thought she added to leave no trace, which, you know, already Deborah Granick and Ben Foster, who two people I've already talked about. And then, you know, rounding out kind of the trio of, of personalities attached to that movie. I think Thomas C. McKenzie was the perfect lead for it. Yeah, she was also on my honorable mention list. You know, she has uh, the tough task of, you know, sharing most of her scenes with a, you know, more well-known, more accomplished actor in Ben Foster. But man, she uh, she doesn't miss a beat in those scenes with him. And uh, again, t- we talk about the way that they play off of other actors, you know, their chemistry is great together. You really do believe the father-daughter relationship that they have. And, you know, the the tension that builds between these two characters is, is extremely believable. And, and Thomas and McKenzie's performance uh, is a huge part of that. Another name that I put down for my um, breakthrough performance is uh, someone from a movie that you haven't seen, Scott, that's never going back. And that's Camilla Marone. Could have easily put her co-star... Maya Mitchell down as well. But I think Camilla Marone maybe stood out just a tad more for me in this stoner comedy from A24, which came in at number 13 on my list of favorite movies of the year. A really uh, fun and hilarious, like 86 minute long comedy. Um, you see you see maybe one of the reasons why I like it right there. But with, with two stars that uh, ha- I hadn't seen in anything before, but really the entire movie, it lives or dies based on whether you you like these characters or not, because they're both sort of screw ups, but you know that they, they have to make them into lovable screw ups. And both Camilla Marone and Maya Mitchell do a great job of that. And Camilla Marone as sort of the more quote unquote responsible of the two, um, even though they're both pretty irresponsible, uh, does a great job uh, interacting with the the crazier Maya Mitchell character, who you know is always trying to get Camilla Marone to to go off on these wild escapades and you know maybe camilla marone can kind of put up a uh, resistance at first but uh, ultimately gives in and she 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 does a great job and has great comedic timing in this movie one of the great one of the uh, a great out gag that i actually appreciated uh because of the way that it's worked because of the way that they work it into the movie involves her character at, at the end of never going back and it, it's pretty great uh and her performance in another scene that i'm going to talk about in a little bit, when another award comes up, um, it is one of definitely one of the comedic highlights of this year. So definitely want to look out for her in the future. And Scott, my other honorable mention is actually your winner. Um, so I'll let you go ahead and and talk about your your choice for breakthrough performance. Yeah, absolutely, breakthrough performance. And I feel it feel almost it feels almost wrong for me to be talking about this actress because you know up and up and down the podcast today, I, I've always tried to let you take control of when this movie comes up and. But somehow this isn't your winner and it is mine. And it's Elsie Fisher from eighth grade. I think that, you know, this performance really, I mean, one, I think it literally might be her first acting performance in a feature film period, but two, what she's able to, to add to that movie and the way she's able to embody the role that was, that was written for that movie. It was just perfect. I think that, you know, you see all the time in movies, people who are often cast, who are often older, cast in younger roles because, you know, maybe they haven't quite hit maturity and they can pass for him. But Elsie Fisher, quite literally an eighth grader when this movie was filmed. And so it, I'm sure it probably 
the, the movie, not only as a breakthrough performance for her, but probably holds a special place in her heart just because she was literally of that age when the movie was being made. So I, I'm sure when she, you know, read the script and, and, you know, got asked for and then auditioned for the role and found the role, it was something that probably really deeply resonated with her. And, and that probably added to the performance even more. And, and, you know, you see people like you, let's Aparicio for Roma who talk about how, you know, they're not really acting uh in some in certain roles because it's just it's who they are it, it, it's their story it's their it, it's the message they're trying to tell and it's just so effortless because it's not really acting for them and and i wonder if it's something similar for elsie fisher here to, was she really uh acting all that hard in this role because her performance is, is spectacular and you know granted maybe she's not breaking into the you know best actress uh, category but for me it's it's the breakthrough performance of the year yeah, I mean, totally a, gr- a great choice. I think for me, be- almost because of what you're talking about with how well she embodies this character of Kayla, uh, as as amazing as her performance is in eighth grade, I have to sort of wonder where does her career go from here? Because she played such a memorable role. She's embodied such that character so well that I feel like it's going to be hard going forward when it when it comes to casting calls to disassociate her from that Kayla role and to you know cast her in different roles just because it, it is so memorable. So that's maybe what held me back from from you know putting her as my winner. But I mean, you know how much I love this movie. You know how much I love the performance by Elsie Fisher and feel that it should have been nominated for Best Actress. Um, so I, I hope that uh, she proves me wrong and, and has a long and, and uh, successful career. But for my winner, I went with someone who is technically not a first-time uh, actress this year. She, she's been in a couple movies, a couple of notable movies in, in the past couple of years. But for me, uh, this performance is going to be one which really puts her on the map, I think. It's really her first leading role in a film. And it's it's the kind of standout performance which you you expect to lead to future roles, maybe somewhat dissimilar to to Elsie Fisher's uh, performance in eighth grade. But that's Anya Taylor-Joy, who, of course, starred in Thoroughbreds, my number five movie from last year. Of course, we've already actually reviewed her in a movie this year, Glass, which she was in uh, as a sequel to Split, which, of course, she was also, she had a more prominent role in Split, and we we talked about that when we reviewed Glass. But I think, you know, she was great in Split. She was great in The Witch, low-budget horror movie from a few years ago that sort of uh, got a lot of critical acclaim. But I think this performance showed her range, the way that she plays this, character who has on on her surf on her surface on the outside has it all together you know she's living in this great home she's well taken care of financially but underneath there's something else t- brewing and watching that come out over the course of this movie kind of how we talked about with Elizabeth Debicki um you know the way that her character changes over the course of the movie from one thing into something completely different and the same with Anya Taylor-Joy's character in Thoroughbreds the way that this character is slowly unraveled as the events of the movie take place is fascinating to watch. And all credit goes to Anya Taylor-Joy's performance. And of course, Olivia Cook, great in the movie as well. I had seen her in some other stuff before though. Um, that That's kind of why I went with ATJ on this one, simply because for me, it was a breakthrough performance from her. And I think probably for a lot of people as well. I mean, Split was a popular film, but no, not a lot of people saw The Witch. And, you know, certainly I don't know that uh, you would say that her performance was the most memorable thing about Split. But 
here, I, I don't think you could say the same. I think her performance is absolutely one of the standout elements of Thoroughbreds, and I look forward to uh, to seeing her in some future movies. You actually just texted me today that she had been cast in an upcoming Edgar Wright movie, so that of course excites me a lot. Being a being a big fan of Edgar Wright as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a fantastic performance. You know, again, I, I've mentioned already that this movie didn't resonate at the same level for me as it did for you, but it it would be. Uh, scandalous to deny either Olivia Cook or Anya Taylor Joy's potential star power in in the making. I think, you, like, I mean, you maybe even mentioned it already, but you could you could have easily swapped it out for Olivia Cook here for a breakout performance. Uh, I think that they both were spectacular in the movie. And the good news, is, Scott, is that in spite of me telling you that Anya Taylor Joy has been cast in the Edgar Wright movie, that's probably going to come out in a few years. Uh, off in the future. You don't have to wait that long to see her again. She's got a very busy 2019, and she's like you said, she's already been in Glass, but she has, you know, two, three, four more movies maybe coming out this year. One big one, which was supposed to come out last year, actually, was uh, of course the New Mutants, which was delayed to this year, right. which is in the X Men universe, kind of a more uh, horror genre of X Men movie that will hopefully you know spawn i mean i imagine i i would think that fox and then you know uh, by extension disney whenever that transaction is finalized will want this to be its own uh be its own franchise and she's playing a mutant called magic in that movie and so there's that and then she's also in a, a marie curry biopic she's in the she's in a supporting role i think is maybe uh maybe marie curry's daughter uh, irene curry which wrote uh, with rosamund pike and and Sam Riley in, in, other, in the two leading roles here. And that's supposed to come out later this year. I'm not sure exactly when, if, it, if it's even been nailed down yet. And then there's a couple others that seem uh, a little bit more, maybe uh, less mainstream movies that, that might come out and not, not necessarily meaning the one like mainstream is in like indie versus not indie, but just movies that I'm not sure will quite get wide releases. And uh, just because of, you know, whatever, it, whatever it may be. Well, hey, strike a good balance, I say. Um, I think that's what she's done so far with movies like Split versus movies like Thoroughbreds and The Witch. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing her going forward in any and all projects. All right, we're going to move on now to our next award, which honors uh, maybe some some good things and some movies that weren't so good. Uh, We're calling it the Brightest Light in the Darkness Award, and it's going to go to a performance that we felt was the highlight of an otherwise forgettable movie. Um, Scott, who are some of your honorable mentions for this category? Yeah, so there's some obvious honorable mentions, I think, you know, like the credits rolling in Hot Summer Nights, and that's got to be one of those standout performances (laughs) of the year. (laughs) No, I'm I'm joking. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It was a bright no. light, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank God, it was over. That's the best I can say. You know, there are there are a couple of performances. It's ironic that we've I look at the list here, and we've both chosen an actress, but for different movies. Um, uh, to be fair, I think I might be a little bit harsh, but I we we both have mentioned Zoe Deutsch as as potential honorable mention here. You have her for the movie Flower, and I have her for the movie for Set It Up because I, which I know you're going to get upset about because you really like Set It Up, but I was less enchanted. But I was really captivated by her performance. I think she has a lot of charm, a lot of charisma, and you know, her charisma with the other lead in that in that movie was something that was that was probably if you put those two things together was probably the best part of them. Yeah, well, I'm going to I mean, I was going to say if, if you're going to consider set it up to be the darkness, then you might want to throw Glenn Powell in there as well, because I think, you know, their their chemistry together was what made the movie snap. Uh, I'm not sure. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that if I could give the edge to one of them. But yeah, Zoe Deutsch is great. Um, like, you know, this is this is not uh 
2018 was certainly not the first time uh, that I've seen her on screen. Uh, she was in my favorite movie from a couple of years ago, a movie that I have seen an, an incessant number of times since it came out j- just in 2016. And that's Everybody Wants Some, um, Richard Linklater's movie. Uh, and so she's definitely been on my radar since then. But yeah, really, really had a breakthrough year this year. You know, she was in Before I Fall last year, which I also really liked. But this year she had a number of projects, probably set it up being the most notable, but also Flower, which I think starts out really, really uh, good, has has a great sort of first 30 minutes that that basically that, that involves her character and uh, and Dylan Galula also, who is a very funny actress um, there. The, their scenes together in the first half hour of this movie uh, take the movie, you know, per, per, perhaps not a long way because it goes off the rails after that, but had me going with this movie for the first 30 minutes before it does go off the rails. And she was also in another movie, I think, called The Year of Spectacular Men, which I haven't seen. But she's definitely someone to watch going forward. I haven't, I don't know exactly what her future projects look like, but I imagine she's been cast in a lot of things with the success that Set It Up had. Yeah, for sure. I... We'll see what if, if better things are to come. I hear she I see she's cast in the Zombieland sequel, which I think is being directed by Zack Snyder. So we'll see. No, I don't think I think he's directing a different zombie movie. Oh, he's directing a different one. OK, well, ignore what yeah. I just said. Definitely ignore what <laughs> I just said. Then He's definitely directing a zombie land, like a zombie movie. It's Ruben Fleischer's directing Zombieland. You're right. Um, yeah, who also directed the first one, I believe. Yeah, and who also directed Venom, which you didn't see. But that's OK. The Oscar nominated Venom. Hey, it could be Oscar award winning Venom. You never know. Uh, yeah, so Zoe Deutsch, I think, is is probably one up there. But agree with your point about set it up with that. It's probably hard to exclude um, her her co-star there. And, and it's their chemistry that really is the best part of it. But in terms of other honorable mentions really quickly here, I think that you're probably looking at, you know, I liked this movie. I didn't think it was bad. And so I have a hard time actually calling it like brightest light in the darkness it has its faults but alden ehrenreich and also donald glover for that matter were both really fantastic in solo again i think that critics and fans might have been a, a little well one a little star wars fatigue coming out early in the year after episode eight but also just kind of the residual uh, <laughs> uh displeasure with the star wars franchise and and how uh or, i mean how i guess episode eight was handled and how some people would have much preferred uh, Zach, not I'm sorry, not Zack Snyder. Excuse me. Uh, I Abrams. I'm forgetting his first name. JJ. JJ. Jesus Christ. Uh, JJ Abrams. Uh, probably would have much preferred him directing all three rather than allowing Ryan Johnson to come in and add his twist to the franchise. But I thought Alden Ehrenreich was great. I thought Donald Glover was great, and I also thought Shailene Woodley was really good in Adrift, which was an otherwise a terrible movie. So that kind of probably does is probably the best fit for it, almost in terms of honorable mentions. Yeah, I also had Alden Ehrenreich down. I agree that I don't think I don't have overwhelming negative feelings about Solo. There were definitely uh, many parts of it that I enjoyed, but uh, I think that probably just speaks to how strong the movies were that we saw this year. That Solo, you know, falls maybe in the bottom tier of stuff that we checked out this year, but certainly not because of Alden Ehrenreich's performance. I think he had a really difficult task of filling the shoes of such an iconic character played by such an iconic actor in Harrison Ford. And I think he did more than admirable job. I I can't imagine people being dissatisfied with his performance, even if they don't like the movie. Yeah. And I saw some people who were dissatisfied with that, which kind of confused me. I don't know why I thought he actually did a fantastic job. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to say he's better than Harrison Ford in the role, but I thought he, you know, that he carried the torch much better than say a Shia LaBeouf did in Indiana Jones. 
Yeah. Okay. So we, actually for our winners in this category, we've picked two actresses that are in the same movie, but they're different actresses. So why don't you uh, mention yours first? Yeah. You know, I mentioned Blake Lively already, earlier in the show already when supporting actress, because I thought that's how good she was in her supporting role. And I mean, I guess you could argue maybe it's not a supporting role, but I think that the other actors in this movie is probably the, the main role and Blake Lively is the supporting role. But she was great. Honestly, I, you know, I know you're such a big fan of Anna Kendrick, who is her co-star in that movie who is the person that you've chosen i personally found blake lively to be head and shoulders above anna kendrick and you know maybe it's because you're more of an anna kendrick fan than i am and and maybe you appreciate the fact that the movie i think what you might say is leaned into anna kendrick being anna kendrick in this movie but to me blake lively kind of really captivates her, captivates the, the, the audience in whatever movie she's in whether it be shallow i mean honestly whether it be gossip girl you know her, her kind of breakout tv show I think that, yes, that movie, I mean, that TV show can could definitely easily be argued that it's total trash. And But, you know, it, it's eye candy in the sense in the sense that Blake Lively brings a, a captivating presence to the show and you watch it, you know, for maybe the different characters also get you get you to turn on the TV. But Blake Lively is the maybe the one that keeps you there. And I think that she did that for me in this in this movie, a simple favor. And, you know, the mystique around that character and the way that she's able to carry herself and and embody the spirit of that character and the allure, maybe is the right word, of that character was something that I thought was really outstanding. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm also a Blake Lively fan. I mean, you know that I love The Shallows, which you mentioned, and The Town, another great movie that she's in, and, you know, uh, others as well, I think. And I appreciate what A Simple Favor did for her continuing to show people that she is a serious actress. Not that she hasn't always been, but I think because people associate her with Gossip Girl, maybe they haven't always taken her seriously. But I think this movie uh, has ha- will go a long way towards uh, her getting that kind of respect that she deserves. But yeah, I did go with Anna Kendrick. I am a big fan of hers. I just wish she would pick better movies to be in because uh, she, she doesn't always make the best choices uh, when it comes to the films that she's in, but man, was she believable in this role as a uh, chipper mommy blogger. Yeah, I guess you could say it's in her wheelhouse for sure, but I don't think that should take anything away from uh, how well she played the category, uh, the character. Uh, I can't imagine really anyone else in this role. uh, And I think that that says a lot to her performance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Look, I'm not the biggest fan of Anna Kendrick. I don't love the Pitch Perfect movies. I don't love some of the other stuff that she's been in. But, you know, if you go back and listen to our review of A Simple Favor, I can also appreciate that, you know, maybe they catered to the certain stereotypes that surround Anna Kendrick or or certain uh, acting styles that fit her better. But that that, that doesn't change the fact that she is a good part of this film, right? Like, yeah, yes, maybe we don't put her in the conversation of people who have a wide range of acting ability. But you don't need to have a wide acting range range of acting ability to be good in a single movie. And that's what this category is about. All right. Well, let's move on now to our final three awards. First up, we're going to talk about the best opening scenes of the year. What was your, what was, what were some of the most attention grabbing openings you saw this year, Scott? Yeah, there were quite a few ones that came to mind and and that's not because there wasn't one that was, you know, head and shoulders above the rest. In, in fact, I think there was, it's just that there was some really great opening scenes from movies this year. I have quite, a, I mean, I know we have a really uh, highly overlapping list here for the most part. I think that A Star is Born, that opening concert scene with Bradley Cooper, you know, finishing his drink and going out on stage and just ripping on um, black eyes is just an, an amazing, amazing opening to that movie. 
Uh, I also think that the opening to Infinity War, uh, you know, in spite of by the end of that, you know, by the end of that movie, maybe you feel differently about what everything means and and all the deaths, et cetera, et cetera, after the snap. But that movie set uh, in its opening really set a really strong tone that this movie is going to be more serious than other movies before in the franchise. You know, you have both Idris Elba's Heimdall and of course, Tom Hiddleston's Loki getting killed off in the first, you know, I don't know, five minutes, four minutes of that movie. And all of a sudden you realize that, you know, this movie means business. Now, granted, I do think that maybe they undermine that by the end of the wow. film. And right, you know, when you have half of the universe dying, it, it's, it maybe adds a asterisk next to everything that happens in the movie. But that opening really, really was attention grabbing to say the least. Yeah, no, I had both of these movies in there as well, *Stars Born* and *Infinity War*. Um, yeah, when when you're talking about attention grabbing, for sure, um, it's hard not to think of those two movies. Another movie that we also had uh, overlapping on our lists, even though we didn't like the movie, was *Adrift*. Um, for me, like this opening shot is really what what got what bumped this movie into the honorable mentions for me. One of the best shots of the year, of course, the great Robert Richardson, one of the all-time greats when it comes to cinematography. Don't know don't know what he was doing putting his name on this movie, but um, I'm <laughs> certainly glad he did because at least it gave me something to, to be satisfied about in this movie. But that opening shot where we see just a bunch of floating, we, we see water uh, le- leaking up into a boat uh, standing water in, in a boat, a bunch of debris scattered in the floating on top of the standing water, including a, a yellow raincoat. We just see the coat at first, and then all of a sudden, Shailene Woodley le- leans up, and we realize that she is wearing the coat and that she was face down in the standing water. Amazing, sort of haunting shot that gets you right in the moment from the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, the movie continued to take you out of the moment um, as it as it uh, continued along, but. Uh, great opening. I, I was definitely in on it for the first few minutes because of the the great work from Robert Richardson. Yeah, you know, as as you know, po- in a in a post Super Bowl fifty three world that we're living in today, it made me wonder which cut. You know, were there more punts or or timeline changes in in a drift? I'm not sure which which one had more. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I would have liked a Julian Edelman like MVP in this movie at least. But nobody stood out for me. Maybe Shailene Woodley did for you, but I don't know. Actually, maybe Robert Richardson was the Julian Edelman. I guess. Who, who, again, maybe it was the credits rolling that was Julian Edelman. I'm not sure. Yeah, but you know, the, one one more honorable mention here before we do on, because I noticed that it wasn't on your list, but it is on mine. And I think that it's a really stark opening message for a movie that is one of our favorites of the year. And that's Black Klansman, right? A little bit different. There's the opening. I kind of thought of the as the opening sequence is everything up until, you know, you actually see John David Washington for the first time in the movie. And that kind of incorporates two things. First, the kind of uh, scene clip from Gone with the Wind. And then the very strange kind of juxtaposition of that gone with the wind shot to uh, a scene with Alec Baldwin, who is essentially creating um, KKK propaganda. And it's, it's a very interesting juxtaposition. And it's an opening scene that, well, one, I didn't immediately recognize because I'm not that familiar with Gone with the Wind and I had to do a little research. But when I went back and rewatched it, it one of the things that it really grabbed me the second time is that it, it really, I feel like, bookends. It, well, I should say it's the, it's the front bookend uh, of a movie that also has a, a bookend at the end as well to, to kind of wrap it off that that is is set in the present tense and, and it's really interesting right because you have this backward looking first scene of the of the movie where you have uh, going all the way back to the civil war with gone with the wind and and then you have 
the book at the end, which takes it all the way to the present and what happened in Charlottesville back in 2017. And in the middle, of course, you have everything that's happening in the 70s and, in, in, you know, is the plot of the movie. But the reason that the front end took so long for me to unpack is that and, and why ultimately I find it very attention grabbing is that this is supposed to be like, OK, this is the start, right? The start is, you know, gone with the wind. These men dying for slavery because, you know, they want to preserve slavery. And in the middle, you have this kind of battle uh, to recreate what was old. And then at the end, you have this thing where, hey, you know, this battle still going on. Maybe we're getting back closer to the point where people were dying for for slavery. And I thought that was when you put it all together, it made it for a really interesting package. And, you know, this necessarily this isn't necessarily a, a winner for me because it didn't grab me immediately because I had to think about it a little bit more. I had to do a little bit of research and, and think about it in the context of the rest of the movie. But in retrospect, it's one that has really kept me thinking. And, and for that, I want to appreciate it. Yeah, I'll also throw Widows out there as an example of a movie with a great opening scene. Uh, you know, we get the the heist, which uh, in which all of the husbands are killed, intercut with some backstory, ju- just enough backstory on each relationship between, you know, the wife and the, the wife and the husband. Talk about an opening scene that really sets you up perfectly um, and is efficient in the way that it, it tells the story and, and gets you right in and, and te- gets you tells you everything you need to know without being heavy handed about it. So great job there. But we had an easy winner for this one, Scott. I think that's fair to say. And it's a movie that's come up a few times on this show. I don't know, Scott. I don't remember this coming up before. It's this really small film called Searching. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I, you know, I was really captivated by its opening five minutes. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting to like this movie, but you know, from the opening, I realized, oh, this is this is something different. Like, this isn't just visceral, viscerally exciting genre movie. Like, this is going to be a special movie, and of course, it was. But yeah, the way that this movie tells the whole story of. David Kim and his wife uh, and daughter and and what happens to his wife over the course of really eight minutes in the movie. But we we get the whole story throughout the life of the daughter, Margot. But of course, just like the rest of the movie, it's told on the computer screen. We don't have any dialogue in this first eight minute sequence, but we just see these really beautiful images like, you know, where the, the calendar invite for her chemotherapy we see it on the calendar, then we see it get moved two weeks later, and then we see it get deleted. And, you know, without saying a single word, we know what exactly what has happened. And it's, you know, many people have made the comparison, but it's like that that early scene in Up where we uh, we see the relationship between uh, Carl and his wife. And, you know, the that eventually leads to her death. Um, and, and the same, of course, is true with, with David Kim's wife in Searching. But a really uh, beautiful and emotional opening to the our favorite movie of the year. Absolutely. I can't say enough good things about this movie, Scott. I'm, I'm thinking about rewatching it for a third time this weekend because I don't have anything on my calendar. And, you know, I think it's going to I think, you know, I was worried that it wasn't going to have the same effect on me when I rewatched it for the first time. And the fact that it had the same effect, I'm expecting it to hit me just as hard this this third time of watching. And we'll see if that comes true. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum now and let's talk about endings and you know, it, it's hard to qualify endings as like the best ending or something. Like, what is it really that makes a, a great ending? Uh, so I, we've kind of qualified it here by saying the most satisfying ending to a movie, because I think that's what you want, whatever type of movie it is. I mean, different types of movies will have different types of endings, of course, but you want to be satisfied by what you get at the end. Um, and what were some of the movies that that did satisfy you at the end? Yeah, th- this one was actually pretty hard for me to choose because... 
I think that it's one of those things where there are a, more so than I think for the openings, there are so many different types of satisfying endings, right? There's, of course, there's an unlimited number of things that could grab your attention at the beginning of a movie. But I often think there's like a couple buckets for which a lot of movies fall into in terms of what makes it satisfying at the end. You know, one which I think is both on our list is the movie that we just talked about, Searching. It doesn't quite hit the heights of its opening, you know, four or five minutes in the sequence that you just described. But you know, if you go back and listen to our review and if you listen to us talk about it on our top 10 movies le- podcast from, you know, about a month or a month or so ago, you're going to hear us talk about the fact that, you know, you get all this emotional buildup over the course of the film and then you get that emotional payoff at the end when, you know, he finally does tell Margot, you know, your mother would be proud of you or your mother loves you. Or I, I forget the exact wording, but it, it's, you know, a really beautiful moment and really satisfying to see the picture of John Cho and Mark, uh, whose name the character's name is escaping me, but John Cho and then his daughter in the movie Margo, you see the picture of them uh, back at school, you know, hearkening back to that opening sequence. And that was something that, you know, really, if it doesn't bring a tear to your eye, it certainly brings a smile to your face. And and that is one example of, uh, of a really satis- emotionally satisfying ending. You know, then there's another type of really emotionally, or sorry, so I should say satisfying ending. And I think something like, uh, I, I don't know, like a, like a, I don't want to say your winner here because I think that falls into that category, but we'll say this. So I think uh, the type of ending that an annihilation might have is something that I also find to be a really satisfying ending. And it's not because it has this emotional buildup and this emotional payoff, but instead it decides to end the movie in a really clever way. So you think back to movies like Inception, which have a similar kind of uh, cliffhanger ending, so to speak, but not a cliffhanger in that like, oh, you got to come watch the sequel to find out what happened. It's a, you know, it's left up to you for interpretation. And I like when, when that mo- when a movie does it well, I I, th- I find that ending to be quite satisfying personally. Although I know there are lots of people out there who would vehemently disagree with with that categorization. And then I think maybe like a final category might be something like a Red Sparrow, where this isn't an emotional payoff, but you have these twists and turns throughout the entire movie leading up to this you know denouement, this climactic moment at the very end, where you know it has to tie everything up or it's failed as a movie. And Red Sparrow is a movie that I thought was pretty lackluster for the first. You know, I don't even remember how long the movie was, but say if it's two hours long, the first hour and forty five minutes are aren't all that spectacular. And then it's move, then it's ending. It really, it really ramps it up to a ten. And you know, for me, the last 10, 15 minutes are absolutely fantastic in that movie. And so that's three different kinds of uh, of satisfying endings that I can think of off the top of my head. You know, besides that one, I also really enjoyed you know a movie like Can You Ever Forgive Me's ending, where you have this final scene that's it's almost kind of a throwaway scene. You don't even really need it in the movie, but it's it's a really satisfying final scene where you have uh, you have Melissa McCarthy's character um, go up to a, a bookstore that's that's showing or displaying one of her faked letters, uh, and you know she informs him that it's a fake, and he's like. Uh, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. And, you know, she writes him uh, a BS letter in the same kind of voice. And he then realizes, oh, crap, this, this is a fake. And then, you know, he is going to take it off the display window and then decides to leave it up there to sell it anyway. And, you know, that's, a, that's another ending that I found uh, brought a smile to my face. And it's movies like that that I think have really satisfying endings. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, another one which we both had down was A Quiet Place. Um, really, of course, that that final uh, shot of Emily Blunt cocking the shotgun, um, the most memorable part of that ending. But yeah, very satisfying. And of course, we're getting a sequel coming soon. Eighth Grade, I thought, also had you know a, a great ending. Again, you talked about 
how Black Klansmen really bookended really well. Uh, eighth grade does the same. You know, we start with a video of Kayla being, you know, her awkward self as she, you know, hands out her her, her typical advice. And we end with another video uh, of Kayla's, but you see that she's changed a lot and she's a lot more confident now and, you know, obviously reflects what has gone on in the movie. Um, and yeah, I also love Searching's ending, of course, that that text message coming through to Margot is one of the most satisfying moments of the year for sure. But let's hear your winner now. Um, it's another one that I wrote down in my honorable mentions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just mentioned it and I talked about it at length already kind of in the attention grabbing opening award that we just gave out. And it's Black Klansman. I think that, you know, for me, I talked about how searching it, it it's, you know, crescendo is almost at the beginning, or at least it's emotional. It's highest emotional resonance is at the beginning in that opening sequence. And for me, it, it, it's kind of vice versa for Black Klansman, although I, you know, I really liked its opening. I think that it really hammers everything home at the end, you know, it, almost in two parts too, because you kind of almost have this in, you have this, you know, fake out ending and then the actual ending. And I think both for different reasons are spectacular. I think for, you know, the actual end of the Black Klansman story, you have, of course, Ron Stallworth, John David Washington calling up David Duke played by Topher Grace. And he basically just, you know, gets one final, uh, one final <laughs> right hook on him and, and then, you know, really leaves it on him. He, he, they've been going back and forth through the, you know, a good chunk of the movie. And, and, you know, of course, David Duke is thinking that Ron Stallworth is, you know, a white blooded, uh, or, or white man who, you know, hates, hates black people, hates Jews and is, a, is a card carrying member of the KKK. And you know what? Ron Stallworth is not that. And the gag that they pull there with, with David Duke at the end, when, um, <clears throat> When Ron Stallworth, you know, uses the language that that to, that David Duke had accused all black people of having, and that's how you can tell the difference over the phone between a white man and a black man, is just, I mean, you're you're getting a sidestep from how hard you're laughing in the movie theater. I watched this movie twice in in two full theaters, and you could barely hear whatever line happens right after that because everyone in the theater is just dying laughing, and, and that's great. And then, you know, Scott, I know you're less of a fan of, of the actual final couple shots in the movie. You know, I personally think that it works really well for the movie and and largely for the reason that I already described that I think it bookends the movie well with the, how it opens. And, and that is, of, of course, the shots of, of Charlottesville and, and from 2017 for the for the I forget the whatever rally, whatever they called it, the, the actual rally that took place in Charlottesville uh, shots of that shots of, of, you know, people marching in Charlottesville, you know, shouting KKK, Nazi chants, uh, and of course, anti-Semitic, anti-black. And it's really disturbing to have that juxtaposed next to a movie that's largely set in the 1970s, as well as that opening that's set back, you know, in a scene from Gone with the Wind, which is, of course, set during the Civil War. So it's a it's a really strong movie. And the more times I think I revisit it and the more times I think about it, the the more I like it, which is speaks volumes to what Spike Lee was capable to do, because so few movies, I think, are able to grow in, in their effect on you the more that you uh, spend time with it rather you know so many movies these days of course have their largest effect on you in the moment and and that I think Black Klansman is a prime example of a movie that's going to stick with you and if you give it more of your uh more share of your mind I think the, yeah, the I mean, more yeah I mean you know that last scene was the my least favorite part of the movie yes but I do love what comes before it you know the David Duke on the phone scene and the other scene where the racist cop gets uh bumped the bar very satisfying scene so that's why it made my honorable mentions as well my winner however was a movie that i think left everyone in such a perfect place that i don't 
I almost don't want the series to continue, even though I know it will. And that, of course, is Creed 2. You know, I talked about how much I was... I, I love the ending and how much I felt like the, the series could end there and everyone would be happy, you know. Adonis has, of course, avenged his father's uh, death at the hands of Ivan Drago. We see him at his father's grave there, you know, basically saying to Apollo, you know, I did it. And, of course, he has his family back at home, you know, his new child um, and, and wife, played by Tessa Thompson. And then, of course, Rocky also, uh, we see him in a place that uh, we haven't seen him for a while, and that's talking to his son, played by Milo Ventimiglia in a, in a very brief cameo. He appears at his son's door, and, and his son welcomes him welcomes him into the house, which you know feels like a perfect place to, to end with that Rocky Balboa character in a movie that is so strongly about fathers and sons. Um, the way it ties those threads together in the end is, is just so satisfying and so rewarding for people who are big fans of the franchise like I am. Hey, couldn't agree more. It was on my honorable mentions list and, and Creed two is a great movie. I think just, just barely maybe outclassed by the original Creed. I'm not sure. I think it's a toss up, right? That both movies are so good and, and not least of which because Michael B. Jordan's in it and you know, he's a great actor. Yeah, no disagreement there. All right, let's move on to our final award, Scott. And, uh, this is scenes slash moments of the year, and there are so many of these. We wrote down a ton in our honorable mentions category, and we, we both have a winner as well. But why don't we just kind of toss back and forth some of our uh, our standout selections that didn't quite uh, w- weren't quite our winners because there were so many scenes, even in movies, that we didn't like that that were real standouts. And I know our list could be even bigger if we tried. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm sure I could have spent like five hours just on this award yeah. alone, just coming up with scenes from different movies, because some, some of them have several that should be on this list, to be honest. Yeah, but I, I've tried to limit it just to one per per movie that I, I talk about here. And I think I jokingly put any concert from A Star is Born could be moment of moment or scene of the year. I, I think that uh, if I had to pick one, it would probably be the uh, I'll always remember us this way concert just because it's the i mean it's both of our favorite songs of the year and and that scene is great but i mean you could also pick the opening scene uh which i mean that's only 90 seconds long or maybe even less with bradley cooper playing you could pick shallow you could pick i mean literally any of them they're all so good um but scott i know that that's probably something that resonates with you as well yeah i mean those were great i don't i don't know that i even put any scenes from a stars born down but again i could have spent hours on this list uh i could have probably gone through every single movie we saw and picked out at least one good scene except for vice so yeah i mean it it could have been longer and yeah i love scenes from a stars born Uh, a movie that i haven't mentioned so far but uh i do have a scene down from it uh you know it was kind of a mixed bag overall in terms of my take on the movie but i really loved the house assault scene from assassination nation uh sam levinson's movie uh the way that this movie is shot in one long or the scene is shot in one long unbroken take that sort of circles the house and we see it from the outside as you know these intruders break into the home to try and uh and murder our main characters um, and you know, the way we, we see the scenes, uh, we see the scene develop, you know, we see the intruders making their way through the house at the same time as we see, uh, you know, the, our main characters in other rooms of the house, unassuming, you know, not knowing what is about to happen. Uh, it really builds suspense in a wonderful way. Actually reminds me of a great scene from one of my all time favorite movies, the untouchables involving Sean Connery's house kind of the the same type of scene, but a really inventive way of shooting this scene from Sam Levinson. 
yeah, you know, not a movie that I've captured uh, or I caught this year. <laughs> uh, but, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get around to it. I got to admit, it's probably not on my short list of movies to get out there and see right away. But maybe you never know. I think another another movie that, or another scene that really got me maybe more so than it got you just because I'm a bigger fan of comic book movies. And that's a scene from Infinity War where it, it's it's the first scene with Scarlet Witch and Vision in Scotland, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. And they're fighting two of the two of Thanos's uh, follower kind of group. I'm forgetting the name of their the name of their group right now. But they are attacking vision. Of course they want the mind stone, which is implanted in his head. And you get this fight between them that ends up in a train station. And right before maybe, you know, Scarlet witch and vision are about to really be cornered and, and kind of out of it. You see captain America, the silhouette of captain America as a train flies by. And then you see his entrance and his, his, his the- thematic music uh, kind of play in the background. And it, to me, I know this maybe didn't have the same effect on you, but that really, got my spine tingling because you know i'm not even that big of a captain america fan in the grand scheme of the mcu but the significance of that scene and how that scene was shot and then the the music to go along with it just really got me yeah i understand where you're coming from but i i I think i would have gone with another scene from that movie if i had to pick one uh from infinity war but yeah i mean there are a lot of memorable moments in that movie for sure two comedic scenes that i went with and you actually chose one as well uh, probably the two scenes which made me laugh the hardest this year. One, uh, which we both put down, was the skydiving X-Force scene from Deadpool 2, another movie which hasn't come up yet, but um, had a lot of laughs for sure. But this scene, I think, at the time, we both said it was the standout, and, and I stand by that. Uh, so just hilarious uh, br- blend of both uh, visual humor and slapstick as well as these bumble- this bumbling uh, ragtag band of quote unquote superheroes that uh, Deadpool has assembled have let's shall we say a little bit of trouble with uh, the simple task of skydiving to to embark on their mission um, and hijinks ensue. Also, I want to talk about the restaurant scene from Never Going Back um, when our two main characters, Maya Mitchell and Camilla Marone, show up at the restaurant to try and get their old jobs back after they unknowingly uh, unwittingly ate a pot cookie at their friend's uh, party at, at, at his house. They show up, uh, you know, I, I, the the scene sort of ends with them after they eat the cookie uh, asking, you know, is it, when is this going to kick in? They're on the bus going to the restaurant. and like, has it kicked in for you yet? No. And then the moment we see them walk into the, the restaurant is just hilarious. The, the looks on their face, you know, huge credit to their performances. Like they're just totally wiped out. And like, you know, there are so many movies where people being stoned are played for laughs, but I really liked the sort of dry way that this movie plays the scene first as the as the girls confront the, the hostess at the front of the restaurant and then later as they go into their boss's office and have an entire conversation with each other about their boss and about how they're going to get their job back. And uh, only later does the scene reveal that he's actually been sitting in the room the entire time and they just haven't realized it. Just uh, just a hilarious sequence uh, in a hilarious movie. Yeah, you know, and going back, I always just find it funny to go through the casting credits for Deadpool 2 and see that Brad Pitt was one of the X-Force and Vanisher. So you can't see him, which is why you don't know it's him. But you see him for about a half second. Sorry. Yeah, I should say you see him electrified on some power lines. But uh, R.A.P. Yeah. Yeah. And then one last one I'll mention. Um, is the kill scene from Thoroughbreds, which is so brilliantly and inventively staged 
you know, the way we see Olivia Cook's character passed out on the couch. We watch Anya Taylor-Joy go up the stairs. We don't actually see the kill. It's just a, a, the camera sits sit still on Olivia Cook. And then after the kill happens, we see Anya Taylor-Joy come back down covered in blood. And they they curl up there on the couch in what is really haunting and, you know, memorable scene. And, and uh, again, very inventively done the way that uh, that Corey Finley stayed. Yeah, I think that. really messed up is the word you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're But in in a engaging way. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. That that's that's definitely true. A few more from me. Uh don't want to spend too much too much time on at least this one for sure. But the, the training sequence from Creed Two, I think that I mean they know how to cut and shoot a pump up scene in the Creed fra- in the Creed and Rocky franchise, I'll tell you that much. That is that will get you pumped up if you need if you need something to get your blood pumping, to get your spirits up. Go go watch uh, Michael B. Jordan train in the desert. Yeah, it it was it was a great you know the Rocky movies always have a uh, great training montages and this one was no exception. Yep, and then one that hasn't come up yet, but I mean we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, Scott. Is the helicopter sequence from Mission Impossible Fallout? I mean y- you have you have called it the most outlandish you know culminate or action sequence in, in an action movie at least in recent years. And do you stand by that now? Yeah, I mean I, I can't remember one. That again, the thing about it is just the way that it escalates, right? Just when you think they've you've seen the most spectacular part, another even more spectacular part happens. I I can't remember a scene of sustained action that that is so uh, mind boggling and and again that keeps wowing you. If I had to pick another one, it would probably be from another Mission Impossible movie. Honestly, the the opera house scene from Rogue Nation, maybe that scene at the Burj Khalifa from. Uh, Ghost Protocol, you know, these movies have become known for their set pieces, and it's easy to see why with uh, a scene like this one. Blowing up a bridge in Mission Impossible 3. I mean, goodness me. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then, you know, just a couple other quickly, Scott, we don't have to talk about this because it both it triggers both of us. But the live, I mean, we got to say the live aid scene from Bohemian Rhapsody. Spectacular, uh, spectacular scene in this movie. Spectacular 15 or 20 minutes of just enjoying Queen. Enjoying Queen, not enjoying the movie. But yeah, I mean, Honestly, just stay home and watch the Live Aid concert on on YouTube because it's all on YouTube. But I mean, if if you go see this movie, you do at least get 15 good minutes out of it. Yeah. And the last honorable mention I want to throw out there is the lighthouse scene. We kind of mentioned it at least briefly earlier, and that's from Annihilation. Of course, it's the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie before you do get the final, final scene. Uh, but it's the sequence that she, you know, Natalie Portman's character finally does make it to the lighthouse. It's what they went into the shimmer to find at this point. She's lost all of her comrades in the movie, but you know, she's made it and she's got to figure out what the source of this, of the shimmer is. And she goes into the lighthouse and what she finds there is uh, wacky to say the least, but I thought it was just an awesome scene. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know how they shot this. I'd really be interested to, I don't know if there's maybe something on, you know, the uh, an extra on the DVD release or or the Blu-ray release or, you know, the digital release where they talk about how they shot the sequence with the alien. But I find it so fascinating to see the kind of mimicry scene between Natalie Portman and, and this alien being that's kind of gestated in the light in the lighthouse. Yeah. I mean, I talked about how much I love the cinematography in this scene in particular it's definitely a memorable scene yeah absolutely all right scott it's it's this is it this is the final award we're giving out this year why don't you go first all right well you know i think both of us picked really emotionally overwhelming scenes for me and i think you know just hearing me talk about a lot of my favorite movies this year you can tell that i'm all about emotional connection when it comes to movies i want to be hit on you know a gut level by 
you know, the the movies, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna call them the best of the year. And even though I didn't call this movie one of the best of the year, and I don't call it one of the best of the year um, for reasons that we've discussed, no scene emotionally affected me more than the moon landing from First Man. An incredible, you know, I, I think the best scene from a space travel movie that I've ever seen, um, as disappointing as this movie was, to be so fulfilled by that last 15 to 20 minutes, you know, it, it's hard for me to think about the movie in a negative light now because of how, how great those last that last sequence is. Um, and, you know, again, combine the technical aspects of it, the editing, the way that uh, Justin Hurwitz's score, of course, cr- crescendos. The the visuals, like the first image that we see of the moon is amazing. And, and then it c- carried through as our astronauts go on to the moon. And, you know, later we see that moment where Neil Armstrong drops the bracelet that his his daughter who has passed away um, gave him, a, you know, a, a really emotional uh, ending to that moment. But it really just renders a seminal moment in American history in a way that, I wasn't alive for this moment, obviously. I don't know what it was like to watch the moon landing on TV, but I actually, I feel like I do after watching this scene, right? Like I feel, you know, it's crazy to me that there was backlash when the movie came out about the fact that we don't see the flag being planted during the scene and, you know, how it was so un-American, even though we actually do see the flag. We just don't see the actual part where it's planted because I can't imagine a scene that more appropriately portrays like, the pride at being an American, like I'll just say it, the patriotism, you know, accomplishment uh, that Neil Armstrong and our country uh, achieved by landing on the moon and, you know, getting the Neil Armstrong story, even if I wasn't compelled by it, it there is such a feeling of accomplishment for him when when we finally get to that moment and he steps on the moon for the first time. It is a truly otherworldly scene and it affected me in a way that no other scene affected me this year. Um, so bravo to, to Damien Chazelle for that. Absolutely. I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's a sequence that, you know, maybe I didn't buy into or, or like the tossing of the bracelet into the canyon as much as you did. But it's it's impossible to deny how how strong of a scene that is. You know, even even if you even if the entire movie was of a higher quality, in my opinion, I still think this scene would stand out head and shoulders above the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I wish the rest of the movie was this good, but hey, again, you know, like I said about Bohemian Rhapsody, at least we get um, you know th- this sequence. And I almost, even though I didn't enjoy the movie, I almost want to go watch First Man again just for not just this sequence, but the the space travel scenes as well. And, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe I'll come around to the whole movie on the second viewing. I don't know if I'll ever fall quite in the camp of Scott Mance on this movie, but I can totally see myself renting, buying this movie just to rewatch some of these particular sequences. I mean, it probably only amounts to about a third or maybe a half of the movie, but uh, (laughs) some of these sequences are, are fantastic. Well, Mance is also a, uh, a Damien Chazelle shill. So, uh, you have to take what he says about Chazelle's movies with a grain of salt after La La Land, for sure. Hey, man, you're you're you were almost shell status for Damien Chazelle, if not for this movie. I'm shell status for Richard Linklater, but he didn't have a movie this year, so it's true. And he, I mean, I guess Bernadette's gonna find it has been delayed, but it will come Maybe. out. Maybe who knows? Year. It'll probably get delayed again. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe they'll come up with a better marketing campaign and it'll get released. That'd be nice. Yeah. All right. So here it is. Final, mo- you know, this movie somehow has not come up uh, in the in our own made up awards. We'll say our own crafted awards. 
but it's going to come up now. And, and I think it's more than worthy of, of, of this award. You talked about how the moon landing was a sequence that struck you like no other scene did this year in terms of uh, its emotional resonance. And I have to say the same thing about this particular sequence and, and in a movie that was beautiful, that was striking, that was uh, emotionally taxing throughout the entire thing. Uh, it crescendoed to this point. And I, you know, there were points where I thought like, oh, this was the emotional height of this movie or this was the emotional height of this movie. But when this scene happens, you know that it is the emotional height of the movie. And that is Cleo and the rest of the family uh, that she is a maid for uh, on the beach, on the vacation. You know, you have the shot. And if, if for those of you who don't know, this movie is Roma, Roma, who, which, you know, Scott and I both earlier in the episode selected as our best picture of the year. And, and this scene uh, captures the beauty uh, of the of the entire movie and also why it was the best picture in my opinion and you have this one shot of Cleo who doesn't know how to swim walking into the ocean to try and save two of the children who also don't know how to swim that well or know how to swim and have been taken out to to sea by by the tide uh, that that's kind of been going out over, over the course of the scene and she wades into the water again all one shot not panning, but following her out into the water. They constructed an entire dock uh, and, and camera rig for them to be able to shoot this scene. And it follows her out into the water. You know, she goes underwater a couple times. You see everything happening. And then it follows her after she's managed to save the children, drag them back onto the, onto the, uh, onto the sand, onto the shore. And the, you know, resulting uh, moment that you get from that sequence is, this entire family. Now you have the mother and the other siblings who have, who have run down to the shoreline as well. And you have all of them hugging Cleo who's crying. And it's the shot on so many of the posters for this movie. And it's, it's the most gorgeous shot of the year. You see its beauty in the shot itself. And then if you have the context of, you know, not only her saving these children when she doesn't know how to swim, but, but also her finally admitting to herself out loud, speaking it into existence that, you know, she didn't want her child that had been stillborn to be born um, because of her particular situation, because the father of the child is, you know, an unreliable person who's threatened to kill her, who has killed other people uh, that we've seen later on in the movie. And, and it's an emotionally overwhelming sequence, sequence, and then moment shot, whatever you want to call it. it, it it's totally overwhelming in that point. And, you know, I'm not someone who, and, you know, I, I shed a tear or two here and there in movies for particularly powerful scenes, but I had a lot of tears running down my face. Uh, in this black and white movie, this art, you know, this quote unquote art house film shot in black and white. That's about a culture that's not at all similar to mine is set in Mexico city. Uh, and is a, is an homage to Mexican culture from, you know, the sixties and seventies, which, you know, honestly, Scott, it shouldn't, it shouldn't resonate with someone like me, but when you see this happen on screen, it, it strikes you at, at your core. And that's the power of amazing movies, right? Like that's why we do this podcast because when you see an amazing movie, it transcends, you know, gender, it transcends nationality. It transcends, you know, all of these demographics. Um, and, and it just becomes something that hits us on a very human level. And I think, you, as you've described perfectly, the scene from Roma does that. You know, this is a movie that so many people have, well, not so many people, but some people have, have described it as boring and slow. And I think, you know, that that's a reaction that some people are going to have and that can't be prevented. And certainly I, I don't at all agree, agree with that that take but I, I have to say, you know, it, it, it does feel extremely fulfilling because so much of the movie is understated and so much of the movie is very subtle in what it's what it's trying to say. 
that we get this huge emotional crescendo at the end that, you know, anyone can, can feel an emotional connection to. And, and I like that it ends on a hopeful note, right? Because, because you, you know, there are a lot of scenes in the movie, which, which don't go that way. And, you know, you're expecting at first this scene, you're, you're expecting the worst out of it, but it, it goes, you know, differently in, in a, uh, you'd have to say in a miraculous way, and it's it's a wonderful way to close out uh, our, our best picture of the year. And, and it's a wonderful way to, to close out our award show and, and our discussions of 20, 2018 movies. Scott, you know, maybe we'll be visiting one or two more on a future podcast and what we've been watching. But this is it, Scott. This is this is the end of 2018 for uh, all for all purposes yeah. in, on our podcast. Yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time on 2018, but I think, you know, that it's because there were so many great movies and scenes and performances and, you know, everything we've talked about today, you know, it, it, it's up there with the best of the decade, you know, one, one of the best years for film in the 2010s for sure. And when we do our best of the decade show uh, here in the summer, I'm expecting, you know, one or two movies will come up probably on both of our lists because it was, was such a strong year. So we, uh, we can only hope that, that 2019 is honestly is half as compelling as 2018 was in film. So salute to you, 2018. Absolutely. I, you know, I've heard some people complain about there was no movie quite of the same caliber as the top, top, top movie of, of other years in this decade or recent years. And, you know, I could I could entertain that argument. I don't know if I agree with it, but I think from top to bottom, Scott, we talked about this not not necessarily recently, but you know maybe closer to the new year. That I probably saw thirty to thirty five good movies this year. I'm not not saying great, but like I saw thirty to thirty five good movies this year in theaters. Maybe twenty to twenty five great movies even, and, and that's really saying something in terms of you know, depth of the bench of movies you could see this year. Yeah, and I mean you know thinking back to last year, I think you know. My, my top movie of last year, I would put above, which was The Florida Project, I would put above any movie that came out this year. But I think when you get further down the list, right, I think my top 10 is is way more solid than, like, my, my number 10 or 11 movie, like, Widows was my number 11 movie, and it probably would have been in the top five last year for me had it come out last year. So, you know, like you said, top to bottom, 2018 was was, I think, stronger than 2017, even if you know, the Florida project to me tops anything that we saw last year. All right. Well, that should just about do it for this week's episode. Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? At S Shelton 2013, where I've become a shell of uh, news announcements on other podcasts or it's not other podcasts, other, other news platforms on Twitter. And you can find me at Scarvy Dent. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of some like it, Scott. If you have, and you'd like to support our show, don't forget about our Patreon page. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay, too. We would love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which, God willing, we will be reviewing The Lego Movie 2, the second part, and Velvet Buzzsaw. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 